a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 175 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, February the 18th, 2023, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank Mark Montero of LCG Auctions for joining a special Friday night episode that we did last night. You can check that out on the YouTube channel, and it's going to tie into upcoming episodes tomorrow. Sunday, 4.30 Eastern, he will be back with a couple of other guests, and we will be covering the LCG Auctions extended bidding in a watch party format like we do with PWCC. It's a lot of pop pop culture, action figures, and all sorts of cool stuff. So come and check that out with us tomorrow at 4.30 Eastern, and then later that night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, Josh Madigan from the Hockey Cards Gong Show will be joining me, and we will be covering the Hockey PWCC weekly hockey auctions as we have been doing lately and finally on Monday at 6 30 p.m eastern on collectible live we have Vincent Zerzolo he is of Metropolis Collectibles and Comic Connect he's one of the leading comic experts in the U.S. and he will be joining us on Sunday 6 30 eastern also next Saturday on Sports Cards Live we will have Josh Adams he's Midwest Vintage Cards on Instagram and He rolled out his new company, 90s Auctions. He will be joining us next Saturday on the show. I would like to ask you all to join the, it's now over 300,000 people who have downloaded the Center Stage app across both iOS and Android for quick comps, whether you're at a card show or you're pricing your cards for sale on any platform. It's a very cool app. Check it out. They have collections, albums, features. It's continuously improving. Join me in supporting them, the great team, and the innovation that they are undertaking. Also want to shout out Leighton Sheldon from Just Collect and Vintage Breaks. Leighton will be joining us. He's going to have a great tie-in to tonight's episode. He'll be joining us for the Vintage Update. Also, be sure to check out HobbyNewsDaily.com. It is launching on April 1st. It will be your daily dose for hobby news and entertaining content. It will be a collaboration between various content creators and original writers. Check that out launching April 1st. As always, I want to thank all of you loyal viewers and listeners. If you are not yet subscribed to the channel, please take a moment and do so. And let's get to tonight's guest who started in the hobby at eight years old when he got a Grand Slam Jose Canseco from 1989 Donruss. And he then went on to start a Jose Canseco collection, although he called them something different. We'll hear about that shortly. He collected for the next seven years chasing Consecos and Ken Griffey Juniors. He came back into the hobby at 25 years old when his wife needed a birthday present idea for him, and he pointed her to a 1956 Topps card of Ernie Banks. He has been active in the hobby ever since. His favorite teams are the Chicago Cubs, Chicago Bears, Blackhawks, and Bulls. His favorite athlete is Ernie Banks. He's originally from Chicago, Illinois, currently hailing out of Los Angeles, California. Let's bring him out. Matthew Rocker, welcome to Sports Cards Live, and how are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be fun. Let's let's jump in. I just said, you know, uh, Jose Canseco, what did you call him when you first pulled that card back in 19? What did I just read? Back in 1989. 
Yeah, yeah. So it was Joe's Canseco to me yeah. back in those days. And so it was like a pack of cards that my dad got for me at the grocery store or whatever for, for my brothers. And I remember opening it and, you know, it was like, this was like a precursor to an insert, right? It was like one of these subsets within the set. And it was, it said Joe's Canseco and it said Grand Slam on it. And I'm like, this guy must be really good if he hit a Grand Slam. He, he must be an awesome player. So at that moment, I decided, you know, I'm a Joe's Canseco fan. I'm going to collect all of his cards. And, um, you know, there was really a thing where it was, it, it really spurred me on to like want to learn how to read right because i'm like looking at these cards and then i remember seeing on tv them say jose canseco and that's when it clicked like oh my god his name's jose it's not joe's right <laughs> but it really took that moment of like seeing someone pronounce his name on tv to really put two and two together for me and then and then you must have gone on to figure out i mean who he was and what he was becoming and how good of a player he was and the bash brothers with mark mcguire did you embrace that whole bash brothers culture that started between the two of them and the oakland a's back in those years yeah i mean i was a big oakland a's fan because i was a big jose canseco fan and so i mean it was whole to me it was kind of like the whole thing about 40 home runs 40 steals in the 88 season i'm like this guy's amazing and i was too young to realize like what a pop icon he was like he's dating madonna and he's doing all this crazy stuff but to me he was just like a larger than life you know baseball hero and the fact that i got that early grand slam card has just put me on this trajectory of collecting in seiko the good thing was is my brother actually started collecting mcguire he's two years younger than me and he started uh, collecting martin mcguire because i was a canseco fan my other younger brother collected nolan ryan only because my brother's first name is ryan so it was like i'm gonna collect this guy <laughs> That's a pretty good reason. And it seems like between the three brothers, you kind of had a good coverage of the most relevant players in those days. I mean, Maguire, Canseco, and Nolan Ryan, That's uh, that, those are good selections. I'd, I'd have to say approved. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that's uh, not bad at all. Uh, before we kind of go back and talk a little bit about what happened after you pulled that Joe's Canseco card, the Grand Slam, uh, through until kind of coming back when you were 25 and all that, I do want to say hello to the chat. Jake Dahl, happy Saturday. Toa Hang, good evening. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Michael Ham, always a pleasure to see you. Carl, uh, you know, put out your question on, on Twitter and Instagram to eBay. I'm sure they can help you out. Diamond Card Collector, hello to you. Preet Ver says, greetings from Estonia. First time ever catching the show live. Best hobby content, hands down. Thank you so much and welcome to your first live. That is awesome. Happy, happy to have you. LGC is back in the house. Good evening. Says trading is so fun, underappreciated and underutilized. Let's go. And yes, as, as I mentioned uh, on IG and, and the description of this episode, um, you know, Matthew did make what I would consider to be the trade of a lifetime. And he's going to give us the, he's going to give us the details of that trade. How we're going to do this is Leighton Sheldon is going to join us in probably in, a, in about 20 minutes and Leighton's going to come in and he's going to sort of give us a, a bit of a teaser as to one of the big deals he made. And then he's going to tell us about how he as a vendor, a dealer would look at and approach being on the other side of where Matthew was. Cause we don't have the person that Matthew made the trade with. So we're going to, we're going to get, uh, we're going to, we're going to get Leighton to sort of step in and, and assume that role. So that'll be a lot of fun. And then we're going to get into the nitty gritty of your trade, Matthew, but yeah, LGC I'm with you baseball card curmudgeon what is going on welcome to the show carl daly says i think my biggest mispronunciation was mark measure instead of mark messier that's pretty funny 
Jeff McMahon, good evening. And TDOT, what is up? Jake's Toe is back in the house. Good evening to you. So, Matthew, let's now go back and just sort of take us through. You collected, you know, as you were mentioning, the Jose Canseco's in the late 80s, early 90s. Take us through uh, the rest of the hobby history. Yeah, so um, I remember, I distinctly remember being a kid at shows. There was a Holiday Inn near my house, and I used to go to the card shows there when I was, you know, like 10, 11. And I remember going there, you know, going to all the tables, looking for their Joe's Consecos. But then I was also, you know, always in the corner of my eye were the vintage cards, right? They were always like, there was like a glow around those cards, you know, how special they were. And my dad had collected cards when he was a kid and his mom threw away all of his Mickey Mantle. So there, there was always that concept in my head about, you know, these vintage cards being something special. And so, um, yeah, so I collected, you know, Griffey and Canseco through, um, 2000 or two, through 1996 or so got out of cards. And then when I was in graduate school, it was one of these things where my wife, was like, you know, what what do you want for your birthday this year? And I was, I don't know. I can never, you know, figure out what I want. I don't want a sweater. You know, what what would be something cool that I wanted? And so that's when I kind of just started poking around on eBay. And I was like, I'm an adult now. I, I don't have a lot of money, but I have some money. So let's see what some of these vintage cards are going for. And there is when I saw, you know, on, on eBay, I saw this guy, which is a 1956 Tops Ernie Banks. And, you know, it was like, it just, it really clicked for me at that moment. Like I can get this classic card of an all time Cubs great in a design that I think is, you know, the, it, it beats all other designs in my opinion for, from a vintage card standpoint, hence my IG handle name. And so in, at, in those days, you know, that card that SGC seven banks, I think was like a hundred dollars, which I thought was ridiculously cheap considering what it was. And to me, touching back to when I was a kid, seeing those in the cases, at these at these shows and, and at that point those objects being essentially impossible right at a level that that i was too far above me i'm gonna look for your 1991 don ross Consecos and your 1991 fleer Consecos. so you know that is at that moment that i started kind of slowly building a 1956 tops collection so this was in 2005 and it was a thing where i would get maybe one card one card a month or every couple weeks and usually getting them raw some, sometimes graded if it was you know one of the hall of famers or one of the big cards but slowly kind of building them up um i finished school in 2008 finished graduate school and um ended up doing a postdoc in maryland and then after that i did a postdoc in switzerland at that point right i'm in switzerland it's not really feasible for me to continue my collecting so i was doing it more vicariously like i was still watching ebay still um participating in some message boards and stuff like that um but then we ended up taking i ended up going to a conference in san francisco so i'm like if i'm going back to the states I i'm gonna need to find a card shop right so like the day the conference ended found the nearest card shop um i walked in this was 2011 so i walk into this card shop and, you know, at that point, I just wanted to rip something. I just wanted to have, you know, that, that feeling of opening packs again. And um, I asked the car shop owner, you know, what, what's, what, what are the, all the kids buying these days? And he pointed me to a box of, of 2011 Tops Update, which is a classic baseball box because it contains the Mike Trout rookie card. And at that time, I didn't know what I was buying. I just wanted something to open, but I took the guy's word for it. And I got one of those boxes and I opened it up back at the hotel and it ended up getting like a bunch of good cards. The, the best card in there was a, a, a gold update version of, of the Mike Trout rookie, which is out of 2000. It's kind of so that one was a cool card because as the years progressed, I just watched 
the 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 number that that card would go for on eBay just keep increasing, and I was just in shock at how much it was worth. But at the time, it was a rookie card, so I thought it was worth holding on to. So like right before my flight back to Switzerland, I hightailed it to Walmart, bought a bunch of nine pocket pages, and I just put all of the rookie cards and kind of the best cards from there in there back with me to Switzerland. So that was my my one card thing that I got to do in those two and a half years uh, living there. Yeah. So that brings you back. That brings us to uh, and how old were you or when what, what year would this have been actually when <clears> when you were at that show? I guess 20 was it 2011 or 2012? It was, yeah, it was 2011. 2011. So mm -hmm. first question, do you still have that trout gold rookie card? So great question. So I don't have that one. So I graded that one myself. It came back a PSA 10. And in, in 20, this must've been 2017, the card, the value of that card reached a, a point where I'm like, I, I, it doesn't make sense for me. To, I don't have a connection to this card other than I pulled it. So I'm going to sell it. I actually regret selling it because of the fact that I pulled it, but um, just this past year, actually, I went on to, I went on to, this is a PWCC card. It's a BGS nine version of the same card. Cause I just had to have that, like that, you know, that recollection, that connection of that moment. So you went and reacquired the card, but, but do you, you said like you would, you would prefer to have your original copy, but that one, that one fills the, fills the need still for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the my original copy is like it's too expensive. It doesn't make sense in my collection for how much how much it would be worth. Yeah, yeah. So hey, you you compromise. You still got what I'm sure is a, a great copy right there. So you mentioned that you know you started sort of chipping away at the 1956 top set. So how many cards are in the 56 top set? So there's 340 cards in the set plus two checklists. So technically 342. If you're a super intense person about it, there's actually a, a variation in the color of the back of the card. So in certain um, sections of the series, they can either be in a white back or a gray back. And in that case, a master set would be more like 500 cards. But I, I'm not that hardcore about it. I'm fine with just like whatever back. Um, so yeah, 342 is the total total set. Yeah, I would be fine with 342 cards. Now I'm thinking to myself, would I want them all with the white back or all with the gray back? Or would I be okay with a mixture, just take what I can get and not really worry about it? Where do you fall? Are you indifferent for your set? So yeah, I'm mostly indifferent. It's true that in in from, I think it's from card 101 through card 180, which includes both Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays that the white back is a much rarer version. It's like a factor of six rarer. It's, so it's quite a bit more expensive. And back when I was collecting in 2005, 2006, I actually bought a raw mantle that ended up being a white back. So it was worth quite a bit. I ended up selling that one later on to get like a higher eye appeal gray back in, um, in a 6.5. Um, but I, ultimately it doesn't matter. For me, it's more about like the quality of the image on the front of the card because I'm a big high, I'm a big eye appeal guy. And so that, that's really what um, where I was making my decisions, yeah. And we do spend more of our time looking at the front of the card than the back anyway. So in terms of variations, if, if there was a front variation, it might be a little bit different for a, a serious collector. So what's your progress like? 342 cards with the checklist. Uh, how far along are you? So I've been done. I've, I've, I, let me put it this way. I've completed having all of the cards in this set since about um 2014 but I'll, i will say that i'm never done right because it's a set that i always go back to there are cards that i i know i want to upgrade the eye appeal if the right one comes along and it's just waiting for it so that's one thing that i found in, in collecting over time is that there is a lot of value in 
just getting a card sometimes it takes the pressure off finding the perfect one so you know you have the card in your collection you've completed the set but in the back of your mind you're like you know one of these days i'm going to upgrade you know i'm going to upgrade that willie mays or i'm going to upgrade that roy campanella and then it affords you the time to be a little bit more patient to find that perfect example and then when you find it you know that's when you pounce yeah for sure um and are they what what is this what is the sort of the situation are they all is it all graded or is are there some that are raw still how do you, yeah, how do so, you have them so very early on i made the decision that it was just going to be far too expensive to get all of them in a graded version so i basically decided what i was going to do was all of the commons i was going to go raw and then if i had opportunistic buys because there's team cards also in the set so if I saw an opportunistic chance to get a team card that was was graded, I'd do it. And back in the day, like back in 2010, you know, 2013, you could get like a PSA 5, PSA 6 of one of these team cards for like $30. Re really not very much money. But if you have 300 cards of that cost, it starts to add up, right? Um, yeah. So and I mean, take, it's, yeah, go and ahead. pick up a lot of room as well. Yeah, that's the other thing, right, is that people don't think about that very often. And that's one of the reasons why I think why cards are such nice collectibles in general. They're small objects. But if you have a bunch of graded ones, they, they end up taking a lot of volume. And, you know, you only have so much space in your house, right? And they weigh a lot more if you're going to carry them around and, you know, uh, to, to shows or to just to, to share with people, whatever it may be. OK, I want to come back to the Banks card, though. So mm -hmm. the 56 tops would be which was your first one. That's that's Ernie Banks, uh, and he's your favorite player as well. That's his, or athlete, I'll say. That's his third-year card, 54, 55, 56. The 50, and I seem to feel like in 55 and 56 tops baseball, a lot of the players had the same picture used for both cards. So I want to put that out there. We'll come back to that. The other thing is that, and I, I mentioned this the other day, you know, if... Back in the 80s and 90s, second year cards were very important. You know, we didn't have all the inserts and different brands each year. So you really just had, you know, in the 80s in baseball, I guess you had three cards of each player. And then, and then there was nothing really else. So then people would have to look to the second year, the third year. And the second year, I remember I had a shop in the early 90s. Second year cards were very popular. Now they're, they're kind of, they, they're not as popular. I still think there's some obviously great cards. And there's some great 12th year cards. What I'm getting at, though, is that you came in to the third year Ernie Banks, which is it's kind of funny because that would have been not the not the rookie card. So not expensive like the rookie card, not expensive like the second year, but the third year card. And it likely looked a lot like the second year, like the 55. So do the 55 and 56 banks have the same picture of him? Yeah, so the so right, 56 Tops has both the action shot and then the portrait. So the portrait of Ernie Banks is the same in his 55 and 56. And I guess one thing I'll say is that when when I look at cards and I think about like how important they are, I, I try to throw the whole rookie card thing as much as I can. I try to set it aside. And what I'm trying to do is I, I really respond to the aesthetics of the card. How, how does it look? Right. So when I'm in 2005, when I'm just browsing eBay for random cards, you know, I'm looking at not the grades. I'm looking at does the image jump out at me? What does it say to me? And so when I see that 1956 tops and I see that, you know, all of the colors, the background image, you know, he's coming home after just hitting a home run. Like, that's it. The, that is the set that I wanted to vote. You know, at that time, I'm like, 
I don't want a crazy card collection. I want a focused collection. So I'm going to go after the 1956 top set. So that was kind of my thinking. It was really driven by the aesthetics of the card. What do I think looks the prettiest? Yeah, for sure. Makes sense. Okay. I have a, I have a, a next question, but before that, let's go to a couple comments. Chris C says, I can't trade for vintage, unfortunately, because all the big shows are nowhere near me. I'd love to make the Burbank show this fall in September. I've heard good things. Yes. Uh, yes, you have heard good things, Chris, and it's a great show. And there was, there was, I saw quite a bit of vintage there. I mean, there's lots of modern, but there was, there was plenty of vintage there. So, and it'll be in Anaheim in, uh, in, in, at the end of August. Labor Day weekend, Chris. So hopefully we see you there. Colin Murray says, hey guys, love the 56 set. Just picked one up. That's pretty cool. Colin's always picking up great vintage cards. So I'm not surprised. Uh, Chris C says, I'd even trade my Jordan stuff to get Mantle or Maze, Aaron, etc." Yeah, I, I can understand. I can sort of understand that, Chris. And Matthew from the Essential Credentials. Good evening. Hope you all are enjoying your weekend. This is going to be a fantastic story. Good to see you, Matt. And, uh, and uh, thank you for jumping in. So what I wanted to ask you is we've been talking all about this 1956 top set. It is even your name on Instagram. I would say, is that all you collect? But I know that you just picked up a 52 tops Mickey Mantle. So you obviously collect 56 tops. You obviously collect 52 tops Mickey Mantle. What else do you collect? Yeah, that, that that's a really good question. So you know, my collecting journey was kind of like, okay, 56 was my first foray into vintage. And, you know, the next thing that happened was the 2016 World Series. So the 2016 World Series was basically a magical moment. A whole season was a magical situation for a Cubs fan. So I was just like delirious with, with what was happening with the Cubs. And I'm like, you know, the other part of collecting for me, aside from the aesthetics, is the connection, right? I want to have that deep connection to what I'm collecting. And so I'm like... I want to have a physical manifestation of the awesomeness that is 2016 World Series Cubs. And so I met a lot of good friends on um, like places like Blowout and Net54, in particular a guy named Darth Frizzo. And, you know, I just went into like 2016 Cubs craziness. So I started picking up what I thought were the cards that made me feel the most connected to that team and also kind of taking into account just the wider range of cards that they're offered right in the more modern era. And so I kind of took my vintage collection and that kind of pushed me towards Topps Heritage because it picked up those designs, right? And then so many of the Cubs players had like those, those real one um, autos, like these autograph cards that are numbered, hand numbered. And so I started picking those up and I started picking up just 1956 tops or sorry, 2016 World Series Cubs players for, t for players that were on the roster and ideally cards that were autographed. And if they didn't have one that was like a pack pulled autograph, then I would go after the in-person autograph to try to get all 25 players plus Joe Madden plus Theo Epstein. So like one of the cool ones I have here, I actually think this is one of the coolest cards for a Cubs fan. This is um, a 2016 Tops Now card. So Tops Now started in 2016 and they would release cards based upon specific events. Like this game in the World Series, they would have this limited issue of cards. And so this one is, it's cool because it, it contains a, a, a section of second base from game seven of the World Series. And it's also pretty cool because you can see if I turn it over, that's actually the W, a piece of the W and O from the word World Series written across the base. And it's also, you know, it's autographed by uh, Chris Bryan and Anthony Rizzo. So that's like, 
like it's Ernie Banks rookie card. And then it's like that card for me is like Cubs fandom, just, you know, in the small image, it's just perfection for me. So that's another big area of my collection or 2016 Cubs for sure. It's really fun. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, I love that card, by the way, that that you just showed because of everything you just mentioned. I love the card for you. You know, I that, that's really cool. I want to come back, though, and talk about, you know, what you were saying a few minutes ago that you're not you're trying to take the whole rookie card thing and kind of put it over here and just mm -hmm. you go after cards of player. I, I, I'm assuming you'll you'll collect cards of players you like that you that are interesting to you that you collect. And you don't care what year it is, rookie, second, third, fourth, 15th year, you are looking for a card that you enjoy to look at, that you enjoy the aesthetics of. And um, that raises a couple thoughts for me. The first one is, you know, as a Hall of Fame rookie collector, there are a few cards that I don't that I don't think are the most beautiful, but they're still sort of important enough to own. So that's one thing where, you know, because I, I love your approach, uh, but I can't. I can't just adopt it 100%. I need to make it. There's going to be some exceptions or I can't, you know, I can't collect exactly that way. And I'm sure you have some exceptions too, but I think it's really cool. And I, over the last couple of months, I've been doing this thing on, on my Instagram stories where I've taken the hockey sets uh, from, from the vintage hockey sets and basically doing these little one slide summaries of them. And I did cover all the OPG sets from 68 to 89. And I'm, I'm just about finished the top sets from 54 to 67 I did the Parker's talking from 51 to 63. The reason I'm saying all this is because, and, and just by the way, they are on my Instagram page in a, in a highlight called sets 101. But in doing that process, Matthew, what happened was I started to, to realize that, you know, there are so many beautiful cards of players that are well past their rookie year. And why, why do we just kind of cast them aside and say, I don't want to collect you unless you're a set collector or you're doing a player run. And now I'm finding that I'm, you know, that I'm 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 more interested in adding more of those cards because they are so beautiful. Someone came into the chat, whether it was last night or the night before. This is my third night in a row going live. We have two episodes tomorrow, one Monday. So I think this is episode three of six in the span of five days. But someone came into the chat probably during the PWCC show on Thursday and kind of just, you know, slandered the whole hobby. Um, and, and said, you know, these aren't art. These are pictures of men on cardboard, but they are art. Some of them more than others, but especially to me, the vintage, you know, and then you get into the modern creative, the second half of the nineties with the inserts, but speaking of vintage, I mean, they are art. Your 56 steps top set is a, is just a 340 cards. Each one is an, is art. These were paintings that were turned into cart. Now, yes, it's not original, but still, it's original to the time, at least. So I love that approach. And I wonder if more and more people, especially with how, you know, your circle on Instagram, and by your, I mean the vintage collectors who are starting to share their cards, if that starts to kind of permeate more out into the hobby, more and more people look and say, you know what, I'm going to pick up a, a whatever, a 1963 Bobby Hull or a 1972 Nolan Ryan, whatever it might be to add to my collection because these cards are awesome. And the fact that it isn't a rookie card doesn't really matter. These are still awesome cards. So I don't know. What, what can you say about all that? So, yeah, I mean, there's so much, to, so much to say about it. So number one, you know, I think that, you know, where I want to see the hobby go is, is people, 
you know, developing that connection with their cards and, you know, really asking themselves, why do I have this card? Why do I want this card? And right now I feel the whole rookie card thing. It's cool. I mean, I love rookie cards too. I'm not saying that rookie cards are bad, but you know, it, a lot of the the interest is because it's a rookie card. It's not because it's the image or because it's this set. I mean, I think 1952 Tops Mickey Mantle is a perfect example, right? You've got the 1951 Bowman that is undisputedly his rookie card. But from a visual aesthetics point of view, at least for me, the 1950, 1952 Tops card is just, it's that card. They're, they're, you know, the image is special. And I think that's so true of, of so many other cards. Like another one for me that comes to mind is the 1934 Gaudi Lou Gehrig, the yellow one. For me, yeah. that's my, I mean, I love that card. I think I, when I picture Lou Gehrig in my head, that's the image that I see. And because not only is the front of the card cool, the back kind of has this kind of tragic foretelling of, of the events that, you know, were, were to happen to him because he considers himself such a lucky guy. And those are the words that he uses to describe himself on the back of that card. So, I mean, I feel like cards offer so much if you are willing to, um, you know, look at the image, try to appreciate what the story is that it's telling you. And, you know, I, I would, I'm very much a person who's happy to be on the train of talking about how beautiful, you know, a random 1967 Topps Willie Mays is, you know, it doesn't always have to be the rookie card. And so I, I love that concept. I love the whole concept of, collect what you like, but really examining what that word means and why it's special to you. And then using that to drive your, your interests and in the things that you're buying. And I think that makes the, the hobby so much more fulfilling because you're not really listening to the input of someone else who's saying it's important because it's a rookie card. Like, why is it important to you? Yeah. Yeah, no, well, well said. I'm going to go through the comments that we've had come in. We're going to bring on Leighton. He's in the back room. And I want to get his thoughts on this too, because I know he'll have some great insights. Uh, but before we do, Chris C says, I do have a 56 Jackie Robinson Grayback, longtime Dodgers fan and love the look of the card. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Kamikaze, welcome to the show. T-Dot says, my 72 Opeachy Stanley Cup card painting is art. Very nice. T-Dot says, uh, the second year Gretzky image is awesome too. I agree completely uh, with that. I think it's a beautiful card. Chrissy says, Cars aren't, cards aren't just art. They are time relics and a snapshot of that particular time. Cards can often tell a story. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with that comment. Uh, they, they, are, uh, they are a time relic, a snapshot. Yeah, well, well said, Chris. And then Mark Santucci, good evening to you. The Burbank Show in California. I don't know. I thought it was awesome. Matthew? Yeah, great yeah, show. It was great. It was great. All right, Leighton, we're going to bring you up. And there he is, Leighton Sheldon. Leighton, I got to say, I'm excited to have you on always. But this time, this is going to, this is right in your wheelhouse. How are you? You're not, you're not in your usual spot. What's going on tonight? No, if I'm going to be candid, I'm literally uh, on the streets of New York City in the village. Uh, as some of you know, I've watched the program. I'm a newly single gentleman. And so, you know, uh, I make sure everyone knows two things about me. I have an amazing eight-year-old son, and I love baseball cards. So if those two things are a problem for you, we're not compatible. Uh, and so I explained to the individual mallet tonight that uh, I have a prior engagement uh, at approximately 1030. And so the reality of it is, yeah, if you want to come hang out in West Village tonight, drop me a message. Send me a DM. Uh, so, so you're on a date right now. You're at a nice 
restaurant or lounge in New York in the village, and you are in the men's room right now joining Sports Cards Live. Well, thankfully, I'm not in the men's room. I'm actually, I stepped outside, and I somehow figured out a way to get into this apartment building into, like, the vestibule here. So, like, until someone throws me out, yeah, I feel like I'm on borrowed time. So I have approximately five to seven minutes, either borrowed time from a date or borrowed time from being in this vestibule of, like, an unknown building in the city. Um, but I do appreciate you having me on, uh, Jeremy. It's great to meet you back. And I did enjoy very much the comfort oh, that was a very large uh, garbage truck. Um, I do appreciate, uh, Matt, what you were just saying about cards, because I had no idea what we'd be talking about tonight. I literally just did a reel. I just got back a 1953 Bowman Color Mickey Mantle from SGC. It's a four and a half. Listen, it's worth a few thousand dollars. Great card. But my point in doing the reel, I was asking for engagement, for feedback, was like, hey, if I said to you all of Mantle's cards are equally valuable, would you not tell me that you do not love the 53 Bowman Color Mickey Mantle? It's the first time he's in a photograph. Think about what's going on in our country in the 1950s. Many of our parents and their generation don't even have a color TV. And you're opening up a pack of cards and you see the majestic Mickey Mantle that you may have not even seen on television to this point in a beautiful, real photograph. Um, imagine you're not getting magazines or anything like that. This could be legitimately the first time that you've set eyes on Mickey Mantle. Um, and so, Matt, your point is right. I know the 67 Maze. I love that card. And in general, I would encourage collectors out there, if you can, try sometimes. Trick your mind into thinking every card is of equal value. Because if you start to pick cards on the cards that resonate with your heart and your mind, you're not going to worry so much about the dollars and make your life a lot easier. That is such a cool idea right there. Challenge yourself. If all cards of a player were worth the same amount of money, which one would you want the most? Would you want the earliest one or would you want the nicest one? And that's, I think, such a neat, such a great thing to just a good challenge to all of us, really. I, I love that. Leighton, as you know, Matthew recently traded for the 52 Tops, Mickey Mantle, a huge card. And I wanted to get your perspective on the trade from the other side. The person who did the trade with isn't here with us tonight, but you are a veteran vendor, dealer at card shows. You have a shop, just collect. You do vintage breaks via vintage breaks. Um, what, what was the... And we haven't seen the cards yet, but we're going to once you, you know, once you get back to your date. But um, what was the person on the other side of this deal without you knowing the other person who it was? What what how would you have approached a deal with someone like Matthew comes up to you at a card show and says, I want that 52 tops mantle. What are you going to want back for that? How, how do you approach being on the other side of a deal like that? It's a great question. Uh, first off, Matt, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you know, it was an amazing trade. Um, and furthermore, uh, it's an amazing card. And really, you know, I'm sure that you would appreciate the end result of getting it, but it sounds like, you know, you, you enjoyed the journey just as much. And so if I can somehow encourage my date to listen to the podcast after I sign off, that'll be interesting because I'd like to hear what you have to talk about, but I'll likely be playing this on, on, on playback afterwards. Um, and so, uh, you know, with that being said, Jeremy and Matt, um, from my standpoint, it's really pretty simple. So if I know you, in other words, if you are a member and you're involved with, it doesn't mean monetarily, just involved, meaning, you know, you're contributing content, you, you're, you're bringing value to the community. If you're in my Just Collect or Vintage Rakes community, or for that matter, if we've crossed paths before and you're someone that we've done business with, or I've someone that 
you know, you've talked to or had dinner or whatever the case is. Point is, when it comes to a trade like you were able to pull off, and once again, congratulations, I tend to try to do them as equally in terms of value, dollar for dollar as I can. But I want to make sure I make this clear. That is, I believe, not the norm. Because if I don't know you, Matt, I personally do not want to have 12 or 16 cards that I have to now not only sell, but I have to worry about if they oscillate up and down in value. And so kudos to you for not only pulling it off, but I hope you can appreciate or I'm sure that you can what that individual or that dealer did for you, because it's not necessarily ideal. Um, but if it's someone who's in my community, I am willing to kind of do a one for one-ish, if you will. But if I don't know you, I really want to be compensated, not so much because I'm a dealer, but because it's actually just a lot physically easier to take one card. And if I had to sell it in a pinch for one reason or another, I don't have to worry about the 12 or 16 cards go up or down in value, but I only have to worry about the one card. Um, and so that really is my, my quick take on it, um, is that you know established relations with not just one dealer, but several dealers, but when I need my relations, I can tell you for me, I love Swedish fish. So if you see me at a convention, you're like, hey, late, you know, I'm going up to the counter, can I get you anything, a bottle of water, some Swedish fish? You might think like, oh, you know, it's not really worth a lot to late, and he even gave me, you know, five bucks to cover it. But the reality of it is, even if you've never bought a card from me, I'll now think about you, I'm like, oh, in the back of my mind, you're in my good graces. And, you know, you have to remember sometimes dealers are just humans. So there's no like corporation that's deciding for, let's say Matt, the person you dealt with, what's gonna happen. So my point is, the more you can bring value and make it a two-way relationship, the more likely it is you'll be able to pull off trading 12 or 15 or a bunch of cards for something as iconic as a 1952 Tops Mickey Mantle, but don't take it for granted out there because I don't believe that's the norm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, very interesting, Leighton. Um, I pre I appreciate the perspective, the insights, Matt. You like you like what he what he had to say. It makes sense to you too. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, and I, I think it really tees up the the rest of the conversation for going through the mantle deal. Yeah, it does. It does, Leighton. We're gonna let you get back to your to your Thank date. You. I hope you have a good time. We are gonna. I do. We are gonna talk about relationships and how important they are a little bit after you go. So tune in later on. Have a good rest of the night. Thanks for popping in. And to everyone, you can follow Leighton on IG, Leighton underscore Sheldon, and just underscore collect. And listen to his podcast, Trading Card Therapy. Leighton, get back to the lady. You're looking you're looking handsome tonight, buddy. Take it easy, uh, guys. It was really nice to meet you, Matt. Nice to meet you too, Leighton. So, Matthew, a couple of things stuck out there. That's why I like bringing him on. He's He's got good insights. But relationships you know he was just saying if you go buy him if you offer to go grab me a bottle of water and a pack of swedish fish at a, at a card show because i'm too busy to get away from away from my booth you know that's gonna earn you some some grace with me some favors down the road and as a myself i've been setting up a card shows for 17 years now and it's so true i am going to give you a better deal if you know even if you're a complete stranger but you approach my table and you're just nice. And you, especially if you want the collection, the card for your personal collection. You know, I, I've told the story a few times. My my original Mario Lemieux rookie from 1985 that I had graded in 2008 was by PSA, came back at PSA 8. I ended up selling it to a guy at, a, at the Toronto Expo. I don't know. This is probably six, seven, eight years ago. But it was a hard process for me. I basically put the guy through the... I needed like an application from this guy to make sure I was willing to let him walk away with my baby. 
and I wanted to see other cards. I said, let me see what else is in your collection. Like, what is this joining, you know? He, he, he qualified to adopt my card. But I, I, that was one little piece that I wasn't expecting Blayton to get into. But it is really important how, you know, how relationships are so important. So with that, the relationship that you, like, did you have a relationship with the person that you made the trade with before you arrived at the Burbank show last weekend? Yeah, um, actually, I didn't. I had had a few. Well, I hadn't made any purchases with this guy, but I had communicated with him a couple times over Facebook Messenger because he puts a lot of cards on there. So I had had like checked in on a few different cards and tried to work out a few trades over over Facebook that didn't really go anywhere. But I think part of it, too, and I think Leighton touched on this as well, is that, you know, when you're anytime you're working with people, if 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 there's something they've done, even if it isn't for you, but like as part of our community, you've seen that they've helped someone out or the content that they create is something that's generally supportive of the hobby. I feel like all of those things really work in your favor, either from a karmic point of view, you know, or or just from like a people point of view of like, hey, you know, this this person's reasonable. They're not trying to like, they're not going to mess up my perfect Mario Lemieux, but they're going to, it's going to go to a good home kind of concept, right? I think those things are really valuable. And I feel like, as we'll talk about later when we get into the weeds of the, the deal, like the community played a big part in, in making the, the deal happen. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And, you know, I was I was kind of getting on to saying there, too, that, you know, the, the Lemieux example I gave was somebody I didn't know, but I liked the person right away. I remember this is someone I would have been happy to be friends with, et cetera, et cetera. But when someone, you know, when you're doing a deal with a friend or someone who, you know, just loves the card uh, I have this one, this one guy, he watches the show. He buys a card for me at every show just about. And I remember the first time I sold him a card, he walked away like almost with blinders on from my table. I, I watched him walk away and turn the corner. I don't think he took his eyes off the card as he was walking away. And I'm like, and I remembered him. And then he came back the next year or the next show. And I, of course, I'm going to like, I'm going to give you a good deal because I like you. You want to do business with people that you like. And so it, uh, they go, the relationships go a long way. And I think we're fortunate today to have many more avenues upon which we can form relationships. Like you said, Facebook groups or IG or Twitter or YouTube, wherever it, wherever it might be. So that's pretty, that's a, that's pretty cool. So the Burbank show, let's jump into the Burbank show here for a second. Now, because the big event, the, the highlight of the show for you that you're never going to forget was this trade. But before we get into the trade, what, what else stood out for you? What were some of your takeaways how did you sense the energy at the show? Why don't you give us your sort of uh, bird's eye view of the Burbank card show from last weekend? Yeah, so I, I guess I'll preface by saying I'm not like a super big card show guy. I don't I don't attend many shows. And the other thing is that, at least for me, Southern California, we don't get that many shows. And so, you know, the I went to the Burbank show, I think it was last August, that was... Um, that was held, I think, at the Burbank Marriott, and and it was jam packed. It was so tight in there. And I remember I went to the show on the last day on the Sunday, and I remember sitting out in the line for maybe an hour and a half before I even got in because they were at capacity inside. And I feel like that just shows you there's a lot of pent up interest and demand in Southern California. There's so many people, such a populated area, but there aren't 
it's not like the Northeast of the United States where there's there's shows every weekend, right? And so that was when I, you know, I knew that it was going to be in this massive convention center in Ontario. And I remember as I walked in, not having, didn't have to wait in a big line. So that was really good. But then as I walked in, it was just massive, right? There were so many tables and there were so many people, but the, the space was large enough to accommodate it. But at least from my perspective of someone who doesn't attend a lot of shows, I thought it was, it showed a lot of excitement for the hobby and it showed a lot of that that demand and interest in Southern California for a big card event. So the the energy that you felt was positive. It felt it felt to you like there was like action going on, transactions, money moving, cards moving, which I think is what you know the hobby wants to see, that there's still interest and and people are looking to buy and 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 I mean which this is a here's a question I have. This goes out to everybody. What is the difference? between a dealer and a flipper because we tend to we the hobby there's this narrative i see people say flippers ruin the hobby get rid of the flippers you see that on comments on various instagram posts regularly i was thinking to myself the other day well most dealers i don't know if it's most or not a contingent of dealers at every single card show buy cards to sell them flipping flipping what's the difference and you feel free to answer this, but I'm asking the chat too. What is the difference between a dealer and a flipper? Because I don't ever see anybody coming out, coming down on dealers. I only see them coming down on flippers. Or is the term used interchangeably? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Matt? This is from out of left field. This just came to me right now. Any any thoughts on that? So the only nuance that I can think of is that no one likes the situation where someone's leveraging a relationship and just like we were talking about before when you get when you're selling someone a card and and that's that's a pc card for them that's you know you like that feeling as as a as a seller or you know that makes you feel good that hey i'm helping this person out i think the situation where maybe flipping is is definitely distinguishable from a dealer is that if i'm selling a card to a dealer I know for certain that they're probably that that's not their pc they're they're going to turn that card around fine. That's part of transactions. I think it's when you have someone who kind of like, you know, they're really pushing you on the price and it's because they love the card. It's a PC card. And then like a week later on Instagram, you see them put it up for sale. I feel like that, that doesn't feel good. Cause you feel like, you know, the whole auspices of the reason you made the transaction have now been voided by that. And I feel like maybe there, there's a nuanced difference between a flipper and a dealer, but in a very negative connotation, but that's really the only thing I can think of. So it sounds to me like you're thinking almost it's almost like intent or expressed intent. So if you're a, if you're a, if you're a flipper, according to what you and we have some comments coming in, I'm grateful you guys have those coming in. Um, what you're what I'm kind of hearing is if that a flipper is somebody who might go to a card show, buy cards from somebody, but not let them know that they're or trade for cards and not let them know that they're going to they're going to go on to sell them and maybe maybe misidentified as saying, Oh, I love this card. I want, and this, maybe you didn't say this, but, but if I'm a flip, I don't, I've got to be, I want to be really careful with how I say this. Mm -hmm. A flipper might say, you know, Oh, I love this card. Can you, can I have a good deal on it? And then next thing you know, they go and they're selling You're like, wait, I thought you loved this card. You wanted a good deal on it. So I, I, I gave you a deal on it because I thought you were keeping it. And now you go see it with a price tag in their showcase. Perhaps maybe that's, what you're saying, whereas a dealer is very honest about it and says, you know, I'm going to buy, I want to get this card for you, but just so you know, I am going to be 
putting it in my showcase to the next card show. Is that sort of the spirit of what you're saying or did I miss it's, it? It's in the right direction. I think there's a difference between omission and misrepresentation. And I think that, you know, if, you, if you're buying a car from someone and there's no reason to ever get into like why you're buying it, fine, that person can sell it, no big deal. I think that at least for me, maybe the negative feelings come about of someone kind of misrepresenting why they're buying the card that 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 is not cool right because then i probably would not do a deal with that person again because they basically straight up lied to you but i feel like that there's a difference there between i think the the, the omission and the misrepresentation yeah yeah that that's a great that's a great way of putting it. it makes a lot of sense and you know i think about some of the the well-respected dealers at card shows who are very overtly only in it to make money and you know when someone says get rid of the flippers, I think, well, what about these dealers who are doing it professionally, if you will? It's what they do for a living. And, you know, even even the flippers who may be less professional about it, I feel like they're still providing a service because they're picking up a card in Dallas and bringing it to the audience in California. Right. They're actually finding hopefully they're finding unless they're just, you know, and this happens too, where they're going to flip it to another flipper or to another dealer who's going to sell it to another dealer. But eventually this card hopefully finds its forever home with the collector. And it's that network of dealers slash flippers that make that happen. So I can't get behind coming down on flippers unless they're dishonest. Then sure, I'll, you know, I can, I can get behind coming down on that, but not on somebody who's just buying cards to make money on them. Um, you know, then there's the whole thing about, well, and I see this on Instagram all the time, um, people will post looking to buy at 75% of comps or 70% of comps. And then you see people saying, well, why would anyone sell to you? Why don't you just sell, sell it yourself or someone? Some people don't want to go through the work. So there is something to be said. There are people who understand that if I'm going to get, I don't have time. Maybe I'm not, maybe I have a full-time job and a family and I can't go set up a card shows and get hundred percent and I have to travel and I have to incur expenses. So I will take a 30% haircut, maybe even a bit more just to get it done quickly. Like, is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that or advertising that you're willing to buy like that? No, I mean, I believe that people are, have their own free will, right? So if you're upfront, Hey, I'm buying at 70% comps. It's not like people have to sell it to you. They, they have a choice. And like you said, there's a calculation that everyone's doing about how much time and effort they have you know, if say they want to, don't want to sell on, on a platform because of the fees. And so then they're limited by their network. And at least a lot of the people who do this for a living, by definition, if they're doing their job well, they probably have a pretty extensive network of buyers. That's the only way that they can exist. And so I feel like, you know, as a collector, we rely on the people who are putting these cards into circulation and moving them around or else we wouldn't be able to get the cards that we get. Like I would be stuck with some low eye appeal example if there weren't like a continuous flow of, of cards. It's just that's how it is. That's how I look at it. A continuous flow of cards moving around the country and, and the Canada and finding their way. You, you know, if it wasn't for dealers and flippers, perhaps maybe you wouldn't have been able to land your new 52 tops Mickey Mantle. All right, let's see what everyone in the chat thinks. Uh, before, uh, yeah, Chris here says, I wish we honestly had a card museum of both individual rare cards plus unopened boxes. Yeah, no doubt, Chris. Call it the Wax Museum or something catchy. I would gladly pay a fee to see it all. You got to think there will be something like that eventually, Chris. But yeah, great call out. Uh, Laura, uh, Laura very says, very simply says, dealers care, flippers flip. And I see that, but I think it's like, I think you have to say, but 
some flippers care too. So do they? So are there two kind? Is there the flipper that doesn't care, or or by definitions, do flippers not care? So dealers care, flippers don't, sort of thing. Maybe is is how I would kind of take that one level further, Laura. But yeah, well said. I think uh, T dot says a dealer is willing to hold a flipper wants to burn and turn. See, I don't know about that T dot because the first show I ever set up at a long term dealer who has a store and does the card show circus, who does it for a living. He told me early on, I've never forgot. He says you need to turn your inventory. That's any. That's not just sports cars. That's every business that has inventory needs to turn it even real estate you hear about low inventory you have to turn inventory so i don't know t dot i i would challenge you to think to maybe maybe just um think about it but come up with something a bit a bit different because i don't know that that's the truth i think dealers many dealers want to turn their inventory too but maybe not okay chris c says flipping is usually to me a short-term transaction at a short, short-term transaction term, or maybe like a holding, similar to what TDOS said, uh, sneaker type. I can't even, like for me, Matthew, I can't, when people bring up the sneaker head or sneaker type analogy, I don't know what that means. I was never part of that community. So I don't know. All I know is Turtle from Entourage. That's the only sneaker head I've, I've ever come across in my life. And he 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 was cool about it. So I can't even speak to the, I don't even know what that means when we hear talk about sneaker, sneaker heads and all that. Uh, T dot says flippers are like day traders in the stock market. More people, the better, irrespective of their love of their label. Okay. I, I can hear that. Hello to collectors dream. Chris says flippers aren't much better than influencers in, in my opinion, same kind of mindset, uh, too general of a comment for me, Chris, I, I would, I would push back on that. Uh, well, I should listen again. It depends how you're defining flipper. So I can't push back against, against it. I just don't think we have yet in this discussion to really defined what a flipper is. I don't think the hobby has defined what a flipper is yet to, to really allow us to, and us being the greater us as a hobby on social media to put them down and attack them. Um, I'd like to see the definition of a flipper and I then, but right beside it, I need to also see the definition of a dealer because they cannot be the same thing because we don't treat them the same way uh currently in our in our social media environment uh before i go on matthew anything you'd like to jump in with based on what we've just covered no i mean i think that that's it i think it's a question of like what exactly is the definition because it's usually used as a pejorative right what flipper usually is used as a pejorative and it definitely seems like it's tied in with social media somehow right but i don't think it's clear what the definition is but i think everyone can agree that there's a lot of value in having people turning cards around so that they Basically, this card gets to see as many people as possible. And so the person who wants to make that their forever card or whatever has an opportunity to buy it. That's the most important thing that the community has to support, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Thank you. We got lots of comments. So we're, we're going to go through these and then, and then Matthew, we are going to get to your deal. But I kind of want to, you know, uh, keep people on the edge of their seats if we can for a few more minutes because we have some great comments. This next one from T Dot, I don't know, T Dot says, there is no duty of truth in the art of the deal. And that's something that uh, I, 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 I like technically. Yeah, no, you don't. You can withhold information from anyone you want at any time. You know, unless you're under oath, you can do that. But there's also I think there's some hobby etiquette. And 
you know, it's it's not etiquette. You have to stand, you have to, you have to adhere to, you do not have to, but I can tell you that if you do adhere to hobby etiquette, and there's I don't know where that rule book is or that edit book of etiquette resides or who wrote it. I'm just thinking these are some of these unwritten things that we kind of feel in our gut are probably the right way to be, the right way to transact and interact in our community that we try to protect so so strongly that there there is a duty of integrity i would say when you're doing a deal but yeah you don't have to tell somebody what you paid for a card before you sell you don't have to tell them what you're going to do with the card but if they ask you um i guess you could lie but i'll tell you what if you lie to me at a card show about what you're going to do with it and even though hey i sold it i have no you know it's not your card anymore they can do whatever they want with it yes sure they can but but some cards some of us feel like some cards are you know they're not they're not human being children but we love them so much that we're like we don't want you to just go flip it. I wouldn't wouldn't have sold it to you. I want it to go to a good home. So if I do that with you and then you, I see it in your showcase three aisles over, it's the last time we're going to do a deal. And I'll probably have to tell a couple of people on my way back to my booth too, because I'm so kind of like shaken by it. What do you think, Matt? That's exactly the point. I think it's like there is no truth in the art of a deal, but what about the next deal, right? The whole point is that you're trying to build a relationship so that yeah, maybe this time I traded you a 1956 Topps Ernie Bank, but the next time I want to trade you a, a 53 Mickey Mantle, it's going to be a different ball game. Next time I'm going to trade you a 52 Mickey Mantle, it's going to be a whole different ball game. And so I think that, you know, that's where integrity is important. That's where you want authenticity in your relationships with people. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe you made $5 on that one deal, but it's blocked you from the deal that could have made you 100 Agreed. It's all about what's going to happen next. Because if you are in this for a while, if you're in this for a weekend, you can do as much damage to your reputation as you want. It will never hurt you. If you're in this for the long run, you probably want to establish yourself as some of the people want to do business with, especially if you're going to be setting up at show after show. All right. I have to just do this really quickly. Flippers. I can't do it in a rap tone, Sean. Flippers, dealers, pickers, wheelers, sippers, stealers, trippers, peelers. Jeremy, please read this faster. I hope that was good enough for you, Sean. But that, that's great. Mark Santucci says a dealer shows a a dealer does shows. A flipper sells anywhere. Me and my friend Larry used to do shows back in the '90s. We were dealers. Flippers buy a card, and two days later, they sell the card. But they're not dealers. I see. But Mark, you but how are you not a dealer if you bought a card and moved it later? I oh maybe what Mark is saying is that a dealer sets up at card shows. Whereas I a think flipper walks the aisles, buys and sells, lists them on marketplaces, on on social media platforms. Is that the is that the distinction? Dealers set up at card shows. Flippers do not. If is that the distinction? And I'm asking because I, I I don't know. Uh, vintage card collector says dealers equal flippers on the other side of the table. So that's consistent with what I think Mark was just saying. Chris C says you're dealing with an unregulated hobby with unregulated behaviors. There are many honest people, but also many thieves. Of course, Sean says dealers who are flippers. Well, those are dippers. I like that because dealers and flippers dippers. Good one, Sean. That has many, many hobby connotations. Uh, David Ventura says, Jeremy, bring your Macar to the expo. I'm a buyer. Okay. Which, which Macar? Remind me which Macar, David, please. Uh, JP, good to see you. Says misrepresentation may be dishonesty, as Matthew said, but flippers not honoring or creating relationships that are mutually beneficial. Yeah, I mean, if you're not, if you're not going to, again, how much integrity and reputation do you want to have? Maybe flippers disregard that and don't care, and they're just too 
they're overrun by call it maybe greed or just the almighty dollar. I, I don't know. Again, I'm speculating. I'm not saying that as fact. Diamond Card Collector says, I don't mind dealers or flippers. I've never sold a card. Everyone needs to make a buck. I've bought and traded to both. I mind the con artist. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Well said, Diamond. TDOS says dealers absorb risk and sell in volume. Flippers run from risk and sell as soon as possible for a profit, if any. All right, you're narrowing it down. I appreciate that, TDOT. JG says flippers are great, keeps the inventory liquid. I think they are a part of the ecosystem. You know, you. I think they are, They are, and it's not like they're new. They didn't just come about since 2020. So um, I, I would agree with that. Um, I'm going to read this one, then I'm going to let you jump in, Matthew. Uh, Chris, he says, agreed, Diamond. However, even the con artists now have their own auction houses. <laughs> okay. Uh, Matthew, anything before I read the rest? And we have, okay, guys, we got, we got to slow down on comments on this because we got to get to the big trade. But Matthew, anything else before we uh, we keep going? No, I think we just don't have really an actionable definition here, but it seems like one that seems not unreasonable is people who only sell over Instagram or Instagram, you know, don't sell at shows. But then that's certainly true that like, a lot of people buy stuff not at shows, and it's really important that that stuff gets around. So from that point of view, flippers okay in my book, but it all depends on the definition. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, Decoy, I, I, this is a good call. It says, you had a guest on a long, long ago who said some LCSs are great, but some are just a front for flipping wax. And I, I remember that comment, Decoy. I don't remember who it was. It's, he says it's somewhat similar concept to flippers, but sometimes it can be hard to tell. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um TDOS says, don't be so myopic when it comes to the deal. There's plenty of fish in the sea, and I believe in integrity, but it's business, not love. Nah. I mean, I I'm, I push back on that, TDOT. That's your approach, not, not mine personally. Uh, Colin, who is a dealer, says, dealers sell what we have lots of. I'm not in a hurry to sell my Makita rookie, Stan Makita, the Chicago Blackhawks. Dealers are still flippers. If we can turn and burn, we will. One thing I don't do is sell a card I just bought at a show. Yeah, see, that's a Colin, but Colin's a pro, right? Like he knows that if you if you buy, a, and I, I do do that sometimes. And I always have a weird feeling. If I buy a card from that guy for 20 bucks and put it in my showcase for 40, what does that say when he comes and sees it in my showcase for 40? It's, it can be awkward. So yeah, I, I always hesitate to do that. Colin's smart though. So that makes sense. And, but he's also saying that there is a, there's there's a hybrid there's a there's some people that are both you can be a dealer and a flipper all within the same weekend chris says flipping is short term to me whereas dealers and investors can think long term okay okay thanks sean but i know you're i know that wasn't a great job hey yo facebook user collector's dream says dealers are flippers too i think that makes sense jp says a flipper does not equal flipping interesting not sure what you mean he goes on to say a flipper is not the same thing as flipping I don't know what you mean, JP, but uh, but let us know. Uh, Matt Billman, good to see you. Says there's only so much you can do with trading cards. LOL, you're either a buyer or seller or both, whether flipping quickly or holding long-term, the action is still the same. I mean, let's just boil it down to the, to the simplest form. I think Matthew does that right there. The action is still the same. It's the timing and the intention uh, and the... I get even just the, the method of which you are portraying yourself in the hobby that can differ, but the actions are the same. And I think it's everything else that's what caused some people in the hobby with, with you know, on social media to come down on others. It's the way in which you portray yourself. Matt, I think you summed it up right there really well. Matthew Billman, and uh, I know we got lot, lots of Matt's, Matthew's around. So we're gonna we're gonna stop this conversation there. 
more comments come in. We'll get to them later. We got to start because, listen, we're an hour in, Matthew, <laughs> and uh, we haven't even talked about your big trade yet. And that's really the highlight of this episode, although this last bit was a lot of fun. So with that, Matthew, 1956 Tops guy on Instagram, let's talk about the trade. I want to hear the whole process right from when you first saw the card at in a showcase at the show. Can you please take us through the experience for you? And then at the end, we will look at what you what 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 the trade entailed. Okay. I'm actually gonna take a step even further back. But so before I go to the show, so one shout out I want to give is uh, one of my good friends, Jared. He he's a master at trading. He's the kind of person that's able to like completely reinvent their collection through just massive trades. And so over the past few years, he's been able to trade up into things like, yeah, 52 tops mantle. And very recently he traded into a 52 tops mantle. That was an upgrade of his previous one. And when he traded into that, it was an SGC three. That was beautiful. When he traded his PSA one, I actually reached out to the dealer after that trade and was like, I scrambled and I was like, this is, I would love to get his one if I could. And so I kind of went through all my vintage cards and sent a message to the dealer, but he had already like moved it, but it kind of seeded this idea in my mind of like, you know, maybe I should actually try for one of these really big trades if possible. So um, the Friday, the first day of the show, you know, before I left, I kind of went through some of my cards and I picked out some of like my bigger ones that I thought could, um, if I saw the right card at the show, I could trade into. And so this was a group of seven cards and I wanna, I wanna get it right, so I wrote it down. So the seven cards I brought with me were, um, this was a T206 Walter Johnson hands at chest, SGC2. There was a 1933 Gaudi Ruth, the red one, number 149, SGC 2.5. That's, that's a really nice card. There was a 1933 Gaudi Gehrig, SGC3. There was um, a 1939 Playball DiMaggio, PSA 3.5, really nicely centered card. There was a 1948 Leaf Jackie Robinson, PSA 1.5. And then there was, um, and then I also brought with me my 1986 Fleer Jordan, PSA 7. So that was kind of a group of pretty, you know, seven pretty solid cards that for various reasons, which, which we may or may not get into, that I was willing to move those cards if and only if I saw something that was amazing, right? So got my cards, got into the car. It was about an hour and a half drive for me to get there. So that, you know, that's not very fun sitting in LA traffic, but I get there and, you know, I'm walking through the show as we discussed, there was quite a bit of vintage there. So I'm walking through the show and I'll, I'll say that like for me going to card shows, it's, it's not real. I'm not really a transaction kind of guy. Like I don't love the transaction side of the hobby. I like the stories the history. So I always try to engage the dealers in conversations about the cards that they have and just try to get a feel for the kind of person they are. Are they having a good show? Because I just love the chit chat. That, that's kind of why I'm there. I mean, I hope I can pick up some cards, but I have a very specific set of things I like. So I'm not really, I don't have high expectations of finding something. Right. Yeah. And so I'm walking the show. I'm seeing quite a bit of vintage. Um, I see the, the mantle that I end up getting. Um, at one of the, the dealer's tables. And um, I'm like, wow, that's a really nice looking mantle. And I'm kind of talking to him and I, he doesn't have prices on anything. So I ask him about a Gaudi Ruth that he has that I know pretty well what the price should be. And the number that he gives me is, in my opinion, like it's pretty high. 
And I, I'm, I don't love the negotiation and the haggling part of the hobby. That's really not my thing. And if, if, if I see a big gap between what he's, his first ask is and what I think the card is worth, I, it's not my, I don't want to spend time trying to get it to a reasonable place. And I just kind of move on. So that's kind of a peculiarity about me. So I'm kind of walking the show, um, you know, chit chatting with people and, um, one of my goals was even if I didn't trade into something awesome, I kind of wanted to talk to some of the dealers about how I wanted to get their advice. Like, how should I go about doing this? Like, if I have this great group of cards here, should I try to sell them one by one and wait for the right card or should I try to trade? And so I was using a lot of that initial conversations just to try to see if I could find somebody that was willing to spend the time with me to talk about that. And I really didn't find it. I, I People were busy trying to make deals. And I mean, that makes sense. That's why they're there, right? So I kind of feel I didn't want to really take up too much of somebody's time. So anyway, I'm making my way through the show. Um, I get all the, you know, I get all the way through the show. And then it's, um, you know, it's probably about three o'clock at this point. And I'm like, you know, okay, there was some cool stuff here, but I didn't really get any of the conversations I wanted. I never even really showed anybody my cards because I didn't get the feeling that I was really going to be able to do anything. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I brought a few cards with me to submit some vintage cards through PSA. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go to the PSA line and I'm going to get over there and get ready to submit. And, and then I'll go home afterwards. So I was kind of like, it's been a fun show. I'm heading out. So, um, so I go over to the PSA booth. I'm, you know, I'm waiting in this line. It's taking forever. And, and there's a gentleman there who's kind of going through the line and making sure that kind of people know what they're doing in this get grading process. So he comes up to me and, um, you know, I'm like, I'm good. You know, I've done this before. I, I kind of know what's going on. And I was the last person in line. So he just starts chit-chatting with me. And he's like, um, you know, you're having a good show. And I said, yeah, it's been fun. I saw some cool vintage cards, had some good conversations, but, you know, just, just about ready to go home. And then he's like, oh, what do you collect? And I told him I collect vintage. And so he's like, oh, I also collect vintage. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a 53 tops Jackie Robinson uh, PSA 1.5. That was a really sharp card for the grade. And I'm like, oh man, that's, I love that card. It's got the Brooklyn bridge. One of my favorite cards of all time of Jackie Robinson. And I'm like, you know what, man, I brought a bunch of cards with me and haven't shown anybody them. Cause I just haven't really had that opportunity or didn't feel comfortable. So you want to check out some of my stuff? And he's like, sure. Cause you know, there's nobody else in the line. He's got nothing else to do. So I reach into my bag and I bust out these seven cards. Oh, uh, there was also a 54 Aaron. There's also 54 tops Hank Aaron PSA four rookie in this group of seven cards. So I take him out and I show it to him and he's like, Oh, he's just like, you know, he's like floored. He's like, Oh, I love these cards. I love these vintage cards. And he's like, I love these examples. Like, what are you doing with these? And are, are you looking to sell them? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not looking to sell them. I was looking to maybe trade into something if the opportunity arose and I didn't really find that opportunity. And then he's like, well, you know, I know a couple of the dealers here and I know one guy that would, he would love these cards. So do you mind if I take your cards over to the table over there, put them down, take a picture of them and send it to him and see if he's interested. And, you know, he's got like a group of like seven of my best cards and it makes me a little bit of nervous to him just like walk away with them. But there's, you know, a big PSA security guard right next to him. And I felt comfortable enough. So he took my cards over. I saw him take his picture. He comes back and he's like, yeah, he's on his way over. He, he's on his way over right now. He's really interested. <laughs> and so, you know, we're standing in line and then and then um, and then I'm like, who's the dealer that you send it to? And he's like, oh, his name is Ashish Jai. And I'm like, oh, I know him. I had met him in the show earlier and I had kind of known him through Facebook as having a good reputation, particularly in the vintage community. 
And so he comes over and he was like, you know, looking at the cards. He's like, you know, these are really nice. I can tell that you've got you've got a good eye for what you're looking for. Like for the grades, these cards look really nice. And he's like, what do you want to do with them? And I was like, well, I don't want to sell them. You know, these are some of my favorite cards. I only brought them with me if there was an opportunity to move into something really good. And so then he's like, well, what are you looking for? And I was like, well, a 52 tops mantle would be really nice. And he's like, well, I have some of those, but I don't think they're, they're not the one that you want. Like they don't have the eye appeal just based upon the cards that are in his hand. He didn't think I would want them. And, and I had seen them and I didn't want them. And um, he was like, well, um, you know, there are some other ones here. And how about I do this? He's like, I'm going to go. I think I saw one that you'd really like. I'm going to go get it from that dealer and I'm going to bring it here. And then I'm going to, you're under no obligation to buy it from me or trade it to me, but I just want to know if you're interested. So he goes over and he picks up the, the PSA two that I had seen earlier where I was, there was just too big of a gap between me and that dealer. He brings the car back and he's like, what do you think of this one? And I'm like, that's the one I'm like, that, that is exactly what I'm looking for. You know, I wanted something between like PSA one and PSA 2.5, just with, I appeal that that was the most important thing to me. And so he was like, I'm like, you know, that I love that card that that's perfect. And then so he's like, well, this is what we're going to do. I want you to, you know, think about what, what, what we're going to do is I like all the cards that you have here. So finish up what you're doing in the line and then come over to my booth and then we'll talk about what kind of trade value we can we can kind of agree to for the cards that you have. And then talk about where the gap is between your cards and the mantle and see if if we can do something. So I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that sounds cool. So he walks off and then I'm mentally, I'm freaking out, right? I'm going crazy because I'm like, I immediately like texting all of my Instagram buddies. Like I've got a, a group of five guys that we're just constantly talking about cards. And like like Nate, you, you know, in, at In Cardboard Veritas, he's one of them. And there's there's a couple other guys. And so I'm like, you guys won't believe this. I, there's a possibility of me trading for this card. And so, you know, they're freaking out. You know, they're very supportive. And um, and I'm also like texting my wife, like, hey, I'm like, I'm, I think I'm going to be home a little bit later because I might make a, a trade for a Mickey Mantle. And then she was like, is it the Mickey Mantle? And I was like, yeah, it's the Mickey Mantle. And then she was like, okay, don't trade any 1956 tops. Don't trade any Jackie Robinson. And I'm like, I'm not trading any Jackie, or I'm not trading any 56 tops, but I am going to trade the Jackie Robinson that you don't like. And she's like, okay, that's fine. So, so <laughs> your wife doesn't like the 48 leaf Jackie? That is correct. So I, I mean, this is kind of a controversial statement, um, but I'm I'm also not the biggest fan of. The, I mean, I get the importance of the card, but from like an aesthetic point of view, I like his other cards a lot better. I just don't think it like casts him in a very like attractive light as because he's a very you know nice looking guy. I just don't think it comes through on the card. But I get that that card is like sacred to a lot of people like my, and I fully respect that. Yeah. Like, like my all time favorite, favorite card, but that's, yeah. but do you prefer the 49 Bowman? Actually, my favorite is the 1950 Bowman. I like 50 Bowman. I like 52 tops. I like 53 and I like 56. Okay. Those are fair, my favorite fair. ones. Yeah. Which, but as far as the 48 and 49, cause kind of both are considered mm -hmm. as rookie. Which one do you prefer the 48? Leaf or the 49 Bowman? I, I say they're both sort of considered as rookie by the hobby because I don't mm -hmm. think, I think there's debate whether or not the 49 is actually 49 or the 48 is a 49. 
in any event. Which one do you prefer between the two? So I I, I prefer the 48 a little bit because I, I don't like the image on either of them, but I love the style of 1948 Leaf. I love the big block lettering at the bottom with his name. So that's what does it for me. I also like the design style. And so that, that's what would do it for me. But 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 I would take a 1950 Bowman over both of them. Fair, fair. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, all right. Sorry. Please, please continue. This is a uh, this is this is very interesting. Yeah. So at this point, I'm kind of bugging out, and um, you know, I make my way, I make my way through the line, and then and then I'm like starting to walk over to where he is. And actually, it was at that moment I had messaged you, um, and I was like, oh God, you know, I think I messaged you that like I'm kind of freaking out here. I'm, I, you know, I'm going to might be trading, making a trade for Mickey Mantle. And um, I kind of just needed somebody to calm me down. And fortunately, like my friends and my wife were able to kind of like ramp me down a little bit. And so um, I go over there and, you know, the show ended at seven. I make my way over to the table, probably about 515. So there's, you know, a limited time here. And um, basically, you know, I take a seat behind behind the table with him. He's got like his son and so two other a nephew and another guy like working the table. And so we take the seven cards that I have and we kind of go one by one kind of through a reasonable valuation of them. And, and I felt like, um, number one with, with Ash, I felt like number one, I think that I could, I got the sense that he really respected my eye. So I knew that if he, and he knew this too, that if these cards were in his case, they would sell, right. These are really nice looking cards for the grade. And, um, and I felt that he had he understood what my eye was looking for in these cards. And so when we were going through the valuation, it wasn't just like, you know, what's the comp? It was like, what's the comp of a card that looks as nice as this one? Right. And I felt like the numbers that we got to were very fair. They were very reasonable. And, you know, these were all cards I was already willing to move. So that that was good. But then the problem was, and this is where most of the time went, is, you know, now there's a gap between what he wants for the mantle and the sum of all those seven cards I just told you about. And so the next part of the negotiation, which took the most time, wasn't a negotiation between him and I. It was a negotiation between me and myself over which of the cards in my PC I was going to be willing to move to get this Mickey Mantle. And so it was really like me opening up my Flickr album of all my cards and um, making some judgment about number one like how important is this card this particular example in my collection right now and number two how hard would it be to replace this card because i've got a lot of cards that that they aren't worth very much but i know how hard it was to find that example and so it's kind of like even even if he gave me a ridiculous value for it which he wouldn't i i, I wouldn't be able to do it because i know how hard it is to find that one and so, you know, I spent, I literally spent an hour and a half with my phone, just flicking through with a piece of paper and a pen and writing down and crossing out, you know, looking at values and trying to see if I could close the gap with the cards that I have and with the cards that I was willing to let go. So I was able to come up with another nine cards that, you know, some of which were pretty dear to me that I was willing to put into this deal. And once I came up with that group of cards, then, um, and what was nice was that Ash just gave me the time to do this because he had kind of like looked through my flicker with me. So he knew the quality of cards that I had. And he was like, look, I know that you've got the inventory to cover this gap. You just need to figure out 
like which cards you can move and then we'll 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 talk again so he just left me alone to have my own internal struggle you know and i'm texting my friends and being like you know is it should i let go of my 1948 leaf ted williams like no no not that one right and i got a really a lot of really good advice about you know cards that i was should move or shouldn't move and why and you know I wanted to make sure for every card that I was moving that I had a very well-defined rationale for moving that card. And a lot of times it came down to, this was a nice one, but maybe like, for example, a card that I put into the trade was a T206 Ty Cobb. That's the red portrait, but with an old mill back, that was a very sharp looking card. But a lot of the value in that card was in the fact that it was an uncommon back. It isn't a rare back, but it's an uncommon one. And since I've owned that card, it was one that like that didn't really that part of the card didn't really matter too much to me. So there was a delta in what the value of that card was and kind of what I would kind of rebuy it for. Like I could just buy a common back for much cheaper and I would be just as happy. So that was a card that was willing that I was willing to put into the pile. Um, let's see some of the other ones. There was a T206 um, Christy Mathewson dark cap card. That was, that's a really nice one. That was tough for me to let go. Um, fortunately, that ended up back in Natan's after he, he bought it from the dealer after the thing went through. So I was happy about that. Um, but another big one was a, I had a 1948 Leaf Babe Ruth that I bought very oppor opportunistically off of Facebook. And that was a card I didn't know that I would love until I got it. And then when I had it, I'm like, man, this is such a cool card. You know, it was issued when he died. And the example I had was also just really nice for the grade. So that one was a tough one for me to let go. Um, some of the other ones that I let go were I had a 53 Tops Mickey Mantle um, PSA 4.5. That was a stunning card for the grade. Stunning. And um, the only reason I was willing to move that was because I was getting a 52. So I'm like, OK, well, then Mantle will still have a good, you know, he'll still be in my collection. Right. And part of my thinking here was that. I didn't know when I would have an opportunity to like this again, to be able to move a bunch of smaller cards into something that I never thought I would ever be able to achieve, right? So I felt like it was an opportunity I had to explore and really have that internal struggle with myself to see, you know, was it worth it? And I guess one thing I want to say is that I'm pretty sure that, you know, the value of the cards that I have added up and, you know, the, the delta in money that I put in is certainly more than if I would have just bought bought the Mickey Mantle outright. I mean, I know that, you know, Ash is making his money on buying that Mickey Mantle from the other dealer. But, you know, in retrospect, I, I don't, the money that that is in that Delta is of value to me. Like the fact that I was able to own these cards for as long as I had and, and be able to understand what about them I liked and what about them I would maybe upgrade in the future the experience in that knowledge was valuable in and of itself. And so I would have much rather done what I had did, like purchased all these cards and then traded them than just like saved up the money and bought the Mickey Mantle outright. And it wouldn't have gained all the knowledge that I've gotten about all of these different sets. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I, man, there's a lot to unpack there. We've got some great comments. We've got a lot of viewers right now. Um, the first thing I want to know though, because you said you were, you're comfortable with the premium you had to give, to get the the 52 tops mantle uh, and we're not going to talk numbers here like what the, what mm -hmm. the prices were on the on the mantle or anything like that but can i ask you what sort of a premium you did have to give like you know oftentimes you go to a, you go to a dealer and they say you'll say hey i'm interested in that card um and they'll say well are you is it 
cash or trade, and they'll give you two different values, a cash price and a, and a trade price. And, you know, maybe the cash price is $100, but trade is going to be 120 So that would be a 20% premium. Can you speak to what you feel the premium was that you had to give to trade for it versus pay cash? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, if I had to just peg a number, I would guess it was probably on the like 10 to 15% range, something like that. And and there's a lot of ambiguity there because, you know, number one, we're dealing with vintage cards and number two, we're dealing with high eye appeal examples. It's very hard to predict sometimes if these things are in an open market, like an actual auction, how much they'll go for, how much people will, extra dollars they'll put behind that eye appeal. And so, but if I had to peg a rough estimate, I would say 10 to 15%. And I was very comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, all right. Let's go to some comments now, Matt. And I do, I hope you can show us pictures of the cards you traded away. You described them, but not everybody knows what they all look like. But first, uh, first of all, um, Chris C here says, uh, not my style. I collect an okay. Sorry, I, that was after. Uh, Chris Muir here says Ashish is the man. Now, when you mentioned his name, and I, I there's a dealer who I met at the Beckett Industry Summit Card Show back in October, who has a ton of showcases with vintage, but he doubles up his showcases. It's not just one row; it's two rows. Is th that was him, right? Because mm -hmm. when you then went on to say he's with his son and his nephew, I remember there being a bunch of young guys with him there. And, uh, and I recognized uh, at least his son from that show. So that guy, he's a pro. I mean, this guy knows what he's doing. And it sounds like he treated you with the utmost of respect um, and didn't try to take advantage of you. Like this guy just won a bunch of points with me and hopefully everyone else who's watching. But then Colin Murray, who knows his way around this hobby, says, I've dealt with him, great guy. Colin Murray is probably another version of an, and I don't know exactly, but like, you know, someone who you know is going to treat you right. So when he says it, that's a that's a great reference. So nice to nice to see. Uh, is, is it Ashish? Is that how you say his name? Nice yeah, and I think see, yeah, it's nice to see Ashish getting some some love here uh, tonight on the show. Jake Dahl says that dealer sounds familiar. Does he is he on Facebook? Yeah, you said he was. Uh, Chrissy says forty eight Leaf is one of my dream cards as well as the fifty two tops. Jackie, yeah, those are dream cards. Collector's Dream says, you know, Matt, your story is similar to his. Sold much of my 50, much of my collection to get my 52 mantle. There you go. You guys have that in common. That's pretty cool. Uh, Chris says, if I sold all my sealed wax from 1980 to present, I still wouldn't have enough to get a 52 tops mantle, but 53 would be possible. Congratulations. Love the story and your passion to acquire a Grail card. Yeah. Nice comment, Chris. Thank you. Uh, Decoy Card says, a flipper. So now, okay, there were, there were some hangover comments from the earlier discussion about flippers i want to get to a couple of them so let's do this one right now a flipper would never tell a story like this totally agree on cards being the bonus to the camaraderie of this hobby at a show i love that comment decoy cards very nice laura likes it too very good very good uh, and colin says chris you can get a nice mantle for your wax maybe just not a 52 tops one uh and then we're going to go back in time uh, Chris Muir here says flippers are cool. Shout out to all the flippers. And uh, and JP, by the way, JP, if you're still here, I figured out what you meant in your earlier comment where you said a flipper is not the same as flipping. I think a flipper has some of those negative connotations while flipping is something that a lot of people can do without any sort of, uh, you know, comeback on them or with, without anyone looking down upon them. 
Uh, but JP did continue to say a flipper can be a negative description of a person who is portraying themselves as a person out to make money only. Yeah, that makes sense. Goes on to say flipping the verb is something we all do, including dealers to support a business trade up or build bank for a PC card. It certainly does clarify JP. And I think I kind of got there on my own anyway, but thank you for the clarification. Whereas Chris, he says, not my style to flip. He says, I collect and hold, but to each their, oh no, this is about, I think that was about sneakers, but I'm not really getting into the sneaker comments because it's something that I just don't really understand. Um, okay. Uh, let's see what Brendan says. So how do all these cards end up physically changing hands in person or shipping? My heart is beating listening to the saga. Well, if, if Brendan, if you're talking about Matthew's story, I mean, this was all done in person, right? This was all done at the Burbank Card Show, which is a great place to do a big trade. If you can find the right trade partner, and you were very fortunate to really to have what ended up being a three-way, like Ashish, he really, he really stepped up for you. Like he made it a three-way deal. Like that's like, what a guy, what, what a, what a resourceful dude he is. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there were a total of four people that were required for this deal. There was me, there was the guy who put Ash and I together, and then there was the actual other dealer. Right. And Ash was kind of in there with everybody. And I think that, yeah, I mean, he both made me feel comfortable, but he was doing all this legwork, right? That That's like his role as a dealer in this show is like, you know, he's making all these connections, trying to make these things. And so, you know, basically that first night then, you know, I give him the seven cards and basically we shake on what the remaining cards will be. And then I have to come back the next day, you know, with the remaining cards, I traded, you know, I gave them to him in hand and then he gave me the mantle in hand, but we shook on the deal that night at like seven 30 after every, you know, they're trying to kick us out of there. You know, we're in the last minutes of this, this deal here. And, you know, I was just, I didn't sleep at all that first night. Cause I was just, I was freaking out, right? I was so excited to get this Mickey. But then I'm also like in my head, like, am I doing the right thing? I traded so many cards and maybe I'll go through and show all of the cards I traded um, just so we can get a sense of, of yes, yeah, so maybe I'll do that. So let's start with, yeah. so the first one here, um, Michael Jordan, right? Rookie card, PSA seven. That was, uh, we'll start from, and then the next one here, this is tough for me to give up as a Chicago fan. Here's the 76 tops. Walter Payton rookie card, PSA 7.5. Easily replaceable. As exactly. That's as exa Jordan. Exactly. That was my point. That's exactly what my thought was. Here's a 54 Aaron, um, PSA 4. This is a nice, nice example. Again, I think I can replace that one. I, I know the things I liked about that example and the things I didn't. So that's that's okay for me. The key Here's there the, being there were the key there being there were things you didn't like about it. So you could find a copy that'll make you happier. Mm -hmm. Different than the Jordan and the Walter Payton, where I mean they're easy to find copies of that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Here was this was you know this one was tough. This was the fifty three mantle uh, PSA four point five. Man, I, I I love that card. Um, here's a nineteen fifty Bowman Ted Williams. I actually think this is a beautiful card. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. I think that's a great. I might have to get that one again. Um, here's a good one. Forty eight Leaf Warren Spawn. Love you know, it. That, one of my one of my favorites. Gonna have to get Sorry. that. I, I'm I'm gonna ooh and awe along the way mm -hmm. here, okay? Because okay. I, I and and just for everybody, like when you were before you did the deal, after you did the, you came, you found me, we chatted about it. I mean, this was this was almost the highlight of my show too. <laughs> you know, I did a few deals myself, but nothing like this. This was this was I was so I was so happy for you and just to to be able to be in the loop. 
Yeah, thanks, man. It was it was it was way fun. So I love that spawn. That's one of my favorite cards. This one has like the tiniest bit of offset in the yellow registration. And I'm I'm really peculiar about registration. So that you know, that's why I was willing to let that one go. Here's um here's the Jackie Robinson uh, 1.5. It's a really nice example for a 1.5, but I was willing to let it go. Here's the Ruth. Man, this is for a three. This is this is a really nice Ruth. Looks beautiful. I mean, so this is 16 cards. Of the 16, eight of them are in the PWCC iconic 100s. I mean, it's it's a good group of cards for sure. Um, here's here's the next one. 39 Joe DiMaggio PSA 3.5. I'm gonna have to get that one again one day. But what um, about the 41 DiMaggio? That's my favorite. Yeah. That's my favorite. So that's oh. one of the reasons this one was in there because I have my 41 that I love. And so I was like, okay, I'm okay moving this DiMaggio. And at some point in the future, I'll get another one. And I actually only bought that 39 because I had such a hard time finding a 41 that I really loved. But yeah, I love that card. Before you go on, I just want to shout out, I watched a video on YouTube today by Greg Morris Cards. And he talks about, well, someone, I don't know, I don't think it's him, but someone talks about the 39 to 41, uh, the play ball run. And they call it perhaps the greatest three-year run by any company in the history of baseball cards. And the 41s are the colors. The 39s and 40s aren't. The 40s have a little bit more decoration to them. The 31, the 40, 39s just, just have the player's photo. But so uh, that was a really educational video. And um, I recommend people go watch that if you're interested in learning about the play ball sets from 39 to 41, of which you gave away the, the first DiMaggio, not even his rookie card. His rookie card is from the uh, the, the heads up set um, from 1938, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I love, the bobblehead looking card. I want to copy of that DiMaggio. There's two versions of it. But anyway, sorry, I digress. Let's mm -hmm. keep on going, keep on going. Okay, yeah. So um, next card up, and now we're moving into the Gaudis. So this is the... This is the Mel Ott 1933 Gaudi. This is, um, I love this one because he just looks like he's going to kick somebody's butt, right? He looks really mad and he's really young. I, I love that card. I'm going to have to get that one again. Um, 1933 Gaudi. Oh, it's not really coming up that well. This is the, um, there it is. Yeah. Oh, there you go. The Jimmy uh, Fox. It's the Jimmy Fox. Yeah. Jimmy Fox. Um, um, here's the 33 Gaudi Lou Gehrig rookie card. You know, this is a nice one. This was one I love Lou Gehrig so much. Um, but actually, this example I I wasn't in love with. And and at the show, a potential trade up for me was if I found a really nice one, I was also willing to trade up for one of those. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's uh oh, sorry, please go, please go. On. Okay, yeah. So next one is this was the big bopper of, of the group. So this is the the red Ruth 149. Um this was my first Gaudi Ruth that I got. I got this one before everything blew up and it has like a very special place in my heart because that's when I first got into these classic vintage cards. Cause I saw the prices of modern cards and I was like, I could get, I could seriously get a 1933 Gaudi for the same cost as like a Mike Trout sign card. Like that in my mind that that, that doesn't make any sense. Right. So that's when I, I really started pushing into to vintage. That was like around late 2018. Yeah. yeah yeah is that all of them no there are three more so now we're last group t206 so here's t206 dark cap christy Mathewson. so this is nate's card now thankfully um then here's t206 walter johnson and then here's so the last yeah go ahead did nate 
knowing you traded the card away to Ashish to get your mantle, did Nate then reach out to Ashish? Because he wasn't, I didn't see him at the show. I don't think he was there. Did he then reach out and do a deal kind of after the show was over, like earlier last week? Yeah, that's right. So I, I actually texted Ashish and I was like, hey, one of my best buddies is really interested in the Matthewson. And so then they started communicating over Instagram and then Nate got the card. I don't know if he has it physically yet, but I know that he brought it. So I'm really happy about that because I love yeah, that card. That's so cool. And and for him, how cool is it? This is one of those, like the provenance of the card for Nate now to have that card that is a part of this story <laughs> that went through this trade at the Burbank card show, you know, back in 2023, like that's provenance that can be tied back <laughs> to, to this video we're making right here tonight where you showed it. Like that's, that's the coolest thing. I love it. Yeah. I, I love Nate, you know, like mm-hmm. great pickup for him. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is some of the most fun about the hobby, right? Is that, you know, these cards that were dear to you, you held on for a while and they end up with someone that, that, you know, it's in a good home kind of thing. Yeah, I love that. So here's the last one. This is the red portrait Ty Cobb. I mean, I love this card and I love, um, you know, you hear stories about like th- that card was like the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. of 1909, right? You had all these kids scrambling around trying to get adults to buy tobacco so they could find a Ty Cobb. And it's really fun to think about like it, me doing that, you know, um, 80 years later, chasing Ken Griffey Jr. Upper Deck rookies. I mean, that's that's really cool. That's uh, it's it's so cool. So that's those are the sixteen cards that you traded away to get your fifty-two tops Mickey Mantle, mm-hmm. and I'm 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 just so happy that I got to see you before the deal and after the deal and uh, and see the card, see see the mantle. I didn't see. I think I saw. I think you. Sh- I think you showed me the first group of seven, but you didn't show me the rest that you had to go back for the next day, which is fine. But I got to see some of them and. I mean, that that Gehrig, the 33 Gaudi Gehrig, which is, you know, kind of the top of my want list for vintage baseball right now, along with my newly discovered Ty Cobb T20, T227 that I, I found uh, just the other night on the PWCC I premiere show. Um, yeah, wonderful card. But yeah, you gave away some. Um, I remember looking at the card. I'm like, man, this is some good. Like, these are some amazing cards you're giving up, you know. But you said to me that you're consistent. You said to me. Some of these, I, I like them, but there's things about them I don't love. So I will find a copy I love more eventually. And some of them are going to be tough, but you got to give up good cards to get good cards or to get the most iconic card of all time. So it's like you said, I forget how many you said were in the PWCC. The eight, eight of them, yeah. Eight. So eight of them are in this book here, uh, but you actually traded away and got the number one card in the book. So that's, you know... You're, you ended up with the, just to show everybody, there, there's the number one card that you ended up getting. You you have to give up something. And if you're getting the best card in the deal, you're going to, you know, I don't mind paying a premium if I'm going to get the best card in the deal. And I yeah. don't mind asking for a premium. Like Leighton said earlier, if I'm going to collect 16 cards for one, that's more showcase real estate for shows. It's more, it's going to take more work. So there has to be, for a dealer, I want more flipper, I guess, but to tie in the other conversation, there has to be a little bit of a, a win on that side. And, you know, you were more than comfortable to do that because you understood it as well. Um, so, I mean, what a, what a great transaction. What a great story. Um, and I love how you gave us all the context leading up to it as well, because I was going to ask you, like, did you go to the Burbank show 
with those seven cards thinking that you were going to dispose of them. And you answered that question at the beginning of the story when you said, yeah, you were looking to trade up for something. And my other question was going to be, did you go into the Burbank show thinking you were going to walk out with a 52 tops Mickey Mantle? And that question still stands because the seven cards you took with you, did you think you were going to get a mantle or were you looking for a better Gehrig? Like what did you go in there thinking I'm probably going to come home with these cards or maybe I'm going to like, what were you, what was your main target before you realized you had to up your ante to come out with the, with the mantle? So, yeah, so this was my thinking. I was pretty confident I was going to come away with nothing. I was pretty sure I was coming back with my, my cards. Um, and I kind of viewed it as, as, as opportunistic. Like if I, you know, there were a couple of different cards that maybe I would have traded a subset of them for. For example, an upgrade on my 33 Gehrig or maybe the yellow Ruth, the, the Gaudi yellow Ruth. Maybe I would trade up for one of those if I saw it have to be the right example. Right. And so I kind of went in there with pretty low expectations. Um, and so I definitely did not think I'd be trading for a mantle, but I was really trying to channel my buddy Jared to be like, you know, I want to create an opportunity here. And I wanted to make sure I had enough cards i did i knew i didn't have enough cards to cover a mantle um but i wanted to make sure that i could show somebody i was serious right mm -hmm. that i had enough that that and that's basically where i could go with ash right he wasn't going to let me walk out of that show because he he had to have confidence that he could then go and buy the mantle from the other dealer right he had to have confidence in me that what he was going to be getting in return was going to be worth putting you know getting at this other card and so I had, to, I knew I had to have enough. That was mostly the reason for the the Ruth. I knew that I had to have at least. I'm not going to be able to trade 40 cards for a Mickey Mantle, right? I had to give something that was pretty valuable. And so that's why the Ruth was the most expendable, but most kind of priciest card that I had. And I felt like if I showed a dealer that, then they would know I was serious about getting something amazing. But I had pretty low expectations. And I was really glad that, you know, Ash was able to basically work this multi-person deal in a way that essentially everyone benefited. The first dealer got the cash for the mantle. Ash got a bunch of cards that he could probably move pretty easily, at least in my opinion, because they're high eye appeal examples. And then I walked away with, in my mind, a card that I never thought I was going to get, right? It's kind of a dream card situation. And so... And back to your earlier point, you know, I felt like this was an opportunity of a lifetime in the sense that, you know, there are shows like the National, there are shows like Burbank where they're big enough that there might be, you know, some real amazing stuff there. And so, you know, I don't think I would have gotten many more opportunities at, at a mantle or something like that. And it was convenient for me that I could drive. Like it would be uncomfortable for me to take all those 16 cards and fly with them to a National or something that just... Like for me personally, I would feel a little bit nervous about carrying that much value on my person. Um, different people probably are totally comfortable with that. That's not really my style. So you, you get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so for me, it was like, you know, I felt like it was a great opportunity. But then also, and, you know, some of my card buddies were like, Matthew, you're really giving up some amazing, you know, some of your best cards for this. But the way I was looking at it is that, yeah, I have a plan for each of the cards that I moved, but also this sets me up for what my collecting journey will look like for the next couple of years. Like I know my want list. I have a very well-defined want list right now, not only what the card is, but what it looks like, what it's going to take for me to like bring it into my PC to, to you know, ride alongside this mantle. So I think it, I, I really, I'm really excited. I think it really worked out well for me in my collection. 
I love it, man. I love it. And so does the chat. We're going to get to everyone's comments. There's some, there's some great stuff there. Uh, there was another PSA 2 mantle, 52 tops, in the in at, on the show floor that I thought was really nice, too. And when I saw it the next morning, I thought, oh, this must be the one that – this has to be the one that, that Matthew is looking to acquire. Uh, but then when you showed me you had the card and I went by that other table later on, that card was still in there. Like, wow, there's two nice PSA 2 tops mantles on the show floor. I thought that was pretty interesting. The other que- uh, that was just a common question I have for you. Rob Veras, who along with uh, with a couple others, run the Burbank Card Show, uh, but you know it's his brand and his kind of face there. Um, does he know about the deal? Did you? D- does he know that this trade went down? And if so, what did, what did he think about it? I mean, this is a pretty good. It's a pretty cool story for the Burbank Card Show itself and their brand. Yeah, yeah. So um, after I made after I successfully made the trade, I was basically in a state of delirium right i kind of just put the card in my bag i couldn't look at it because i was just my brain was just flying right and so you know it was around that time when i found you and you know showed you the card that helped me kind of settle down a little bit and then i was as i was getting ready to leave the for the day actually i saw rob and i came up to him and i shook his hand and i said hey man i want to thank you for putting on such an awesome show because with without this show and all the people that it took to get this done i wouldn't have been able to get this card and then I, you know i handed him the mantle and he's like oh you know and he was he was really excited for me i thought that was I, I felt happy to you know shake his hand for for putting on such a great show and i remember there was a woman with him and she was like she was like oh because he was looking at it and she's like oh what card is it and then and then he showed her and she's like i don't know very much about cards but i know that one <laughs> you know uh, yeah. you know stuff like that is like you know um, that made me feel pretty good and it was fun to say to, to thank rob for putting that for, for putting the show together and that was probably his wife the card mother who was there with him uh for a lot of the show um oh that's awesome man i love it it's it's a uh, just just a great story um, okay, so I want to go to Brendan's question here. Matthew, you talked about negotiating with yourself with the cards you would give up. Which one was the one that hurt the most to let go? You just mentioned mentioned the Babe Ruth, the red Babe Ruth was the most expensive, maybe, but what was the most difficult one for you to let go? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So I think the most difficult one for me to let go was um was probably the 48 leaf Ruth because that one was a serendipitous card for me. It wasn't one that I was looking for. And I felt like the example was so strong and I'd always been like, Oh, it's not a playing days Ruth. So it's not that cool. But once I had it, I really appreciated it. And so that one was that that's when I'm not sure I'm going to be able to replace just given the cost of it. And, but that one was particularly tough because I don't think I'll be able to find an example like that. Um, the other one was tough was the was the 53 mantle and because I loved it so much. It was such a great example and I, it took me a long time to find that one, but it was really only because of the 52 that I could justify it. So those were the ones that kind of were the most painful. Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks for the question, Brendan. Chris Muir here says, I came close to selling Ashish my Leaf Satchel page at the National last year. So he's a He's a well-known guy. Uh, Sean says, really appreciate Matthew's transparency and sharing this with the hobby. Very cool. I'm especially grateful that we're doing it here on, on Sports Cars Live. And uh, But I do feel like I was there with you, Matt. Like it was it was, it was was just so cool. I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. I really am. Uh, TDOS says, I like your excitement before you got the card. That's what, it, that's what it's all about. Chris says, props to Ash for getting everyone together to work out that deal. Yeah, for sure. Only one of all those I have is the Jordan. Wow. Yep. Jake says 41 play ball is a great set. It is beautiful for sure. 
Jake goes on to say Diamond Stars is another great set. Diamond Card Collector says, looks like you both did well on that deal, Matthew. Nice trades, nice mantle. Just check it out on IG. Beautiful and congratulations. Yes, Chris, it was 16. It was a 16 for one deal, right? No money put on tops. There was, there was some money on my side, some, but not, not much. Okay, okay. So a 16 for one plus not much money. Uh, very cool, very cool. Mark says 41 play ball is very expensive. Before my time, I'll take 73, 72, and 75. Yeah, those are all pretty cool. I love the 75s just for those, the, the dual colors. Uh, Darren, welcome to the show. <laughs> says, Yeah, there's a whole story, Darren. This whole episode has been, I, I, if I can say so, this has been a lot of, a, this has been a very fun discussion since we came on the air. So uh, go back and watch this one, Darren, if you have time. Uh, okay, and then Colin says it's a huge win for both of you. Ash is going to get more mantles, but will take years to get your group of 16. That is now a comp on the mantle classic. And we're, I mean, if nothing else, we have it documented right here on, on Sports Cards Live now. Chris C says trading cards is what they're called for this very scenario. Win-win for all. Uh, Mark Santucci wants to know, any Bobby Halls on your want list? Yeah, so that's a great question. So in my mind, there's a, there's a Mount Rushmore of Chicago cards. And one of the certainly one of the cards on that Mount Rushmore is Bobby Hall. And so I, that's in my eBay, like, you know, bullet, like little search list, but I don't have one. And now I don't have a Jordan rookie and I don't have a Peyton rookie. So the only one on the Mount Rushmore I do have is the Ernie Banks rookie. So now I got to kind of start my Mount Rushmore over a little bit. Very. It's funny. I had a, a, a Bobby Hall with me at Burbank show that was available and uh, you might have seen it was sitting in Carlos Diego's uh, showcase for uh, for a couple of days there. And um, I don't I don't know if you happen to see it, but we could talk. We could talk. I have that <laughs> available. Um, Mark says oh, we did that one. Sorry. OK, Frank. Great pickup, Matthew. Yeah, lots of uh, lot, lots of good sort of congratulations here. Uh, Darren, it was a PSA two. the mantle that that uh, do you have it? Do you? Yeah, 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 yeah right we got to see the mantle here. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's the point of this whole thing if we're not yeah. showing it? Let me uh, let me see if I can make you bigger. How do I make you bigger? Where is it? Which one is it? There we go. And there we go. All right. So it's a two. Maybe tilt the top towards the camera a little bit of the screen. Sometimes can yeah, you got to go in reverse direction there. Yeah, it's not the best. Streamyard isn't the best for looking at at, at cards, but you get the idea. Like it looks. Let's see it some more. Put it back up. Put it back up, please. <laughs> Like it, you can tell the centering is very, very like you. Some twos are just dirty. Like this is a clean, clean card. It it's not perfect, right? So it has like a little bit of a crease that's um just to the side of his face here. There's a little bit of stuff on the surface, but I mean, I don't know. I'd love to, you know, I don't know if we'll have time, but you know, I'd love to talk about eye appeal and like what it means to me. But this card, like, check those boxes of okay, you know this this is an awesome example. So that, and that's exactly what I was looking for. And, and it, it's on my Instagram. If you, if you check it out. Yeah. What did your wife think of this? Like when she said, is it the mantle? And you said, yes, yeah. like tell us about your wife's perspective on the, on the whole thing. I mean, and someone had asked earlier, what was the list price on the mantle? You, we, you don't want to discuss that and that's fair, but your wife probably knows kind of what the value of this deal was. Um, what do you, what 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 are her thoughts? Tell us about your wife's perspective on all this. So, I mean, she knows that I'm like kind of a card nut, of course, right? And then I spend time making little videos and putting pictures on Instagram of of these pictures of men, these these fine pieces of art, as I would put them. Um, 
But like for me, like she could just tell how excited I was about this this particular card. And so when when I brought it home, she was like, well, where is it? You know, so um, we kind of like as we were hanging out for the night and having dinner, he was kind of like Mickey was kind of hanging out with us. Right. Because <laughs> I just couldn't put the card down. And so we had a lot of discussions about, you know, she's like, so what what makes this the Mickey Mantle? So she's just curious. Right. And so we were talking, telling her the story about, you know, how it's the high number and how all these things were dumped into the ocean and then um, or into the Hudson Bay. And that, um, you know, this was the first like um, bubblegum card issue from Tops, and that it was kind of like a combination of Mickey Mantle as a player and, and the popularity of his time and you know baseball cards becoming popular but then there's also the art element to it and you know when you look at the card it 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 just jumps out to you as being important not just because it's mickey mantle but it's this combination of the design of the card and you know one thing that she pointed out when looking at the card was she was like well I think it's probably pretty popular because the way that the image is portrayed is that it's it looks like a kid is like looking up at an adult so it portrays mantle in a very like heroic posture right and his eyes are off center with you know he's not looking kind of at the camera in the the artist rendition of the photo and so there's like it's got kind of you know mona lisa you know it's got like your eye is kind of drawn into his face and up and so it's a very like you know it's just a very heroic posture and so from her point of view looking at it as a non-card person and that and and actually that speaks a little bit about you know how i think about my cards is being able to be appreciated by people who even don't know that much about cards and i feel like the 52 tops mantle there are many reasons why it's it's number one on the list but you know part of it really is the art it's, it's just the fact that the card just looks beautiful itself and I think that that was something that she really appreciated. And it was really cool being able to share with her, like, what makes this card exciting? Like, what's so special about this this piece of cardboard from 1952? And it's number one in the iconic 100 PWCC list, which is, which is uh, you know, that there's some evidence of its greatness right there. T-Dot here says, you're like a girl with her new engagement ring. Just you know, happy, <laughs> happy to show it off. Brendan Omelia here says, I'm just thinking about the 16 different histories of those 16 iconic cards coming together to unlock a 52 tops mantle. It's awe-inspiring cinematic epic. Like that's the, so far, I think that that's the quote of the night right there, because that, that just sums up your whole experience. I, I love this comment, Brendan. It's a great I, I comment. Love, yeah, it's a great comment. The way you, you, you articulated that wonderful comment. Uh, Jake here says, uh, everyone knows about the 52 Tops Mickey Mantle, just like everyone knows who Babe Ruth is. It's not even not even just baseball fans. Yeah, most certainly true right there. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, I appeal, what I appeal means to you. And maybe we'll talk about that. And, you know, we're coming up on, we're five minutes away from two hours here. There's still a bunch of things that I wanted to talk about. So I think we're going to go into a bit of overtime here tonight, which, which I'm okay with. Um, let's talk about I appeal. You know, how do you evaluate I appeal? You mentioned a few minutes ago that you're very particular about registration. To me, registration is like number one. So I'm certainly uh, with you on that. Um, define I appeal for us in uh, the way that you do, please. Oh, that's it. I love this question. This is one of the my favorite questions. So I'd like to take a step back instead of like trying to break it down into which segments of the card and, 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 and kind of evaluate what I appeal is. So number one, to me, it's highly personal, right? It's, it's, you get to make the decision about what you think 
what appeals to you about the card. And for me, if I the way I would generally categorize high eye appeal cards are there those cards when you look at them and your eye is not drawn to the flaws, but is drawn to like the art. It's drawn to the card. You like it's that you look at the card and the first thing you do isn't be like, oh, you know, there's this issue, there's that issue. It's more like take a step back and just say, what does this look like? And so, you know, I think you had this conversation with Maddie C, right, where we talked about, you know, you don't hang something on the wall that has like, you know, a one inch um, frame on one side and a three inch frame on the other. It's a similar kind of thing. But I think when you boil it down to what are the elements of the card that makes you make its good features stand out and hide its poor features, I think then you get to the point of like, okay, you know, registration is really important because if, if the registration's off and the card looks a little out of focus, then your eye is like trying to adjust to try to like figure out what should the image look like. And so your brain is doing like extra work to figure out what what is this thing supposed to actually be. So that's definitely high up on the list. But then there's also things like the color, right? If there's like damage to the surface and things like that, right? That That's also a thing that kind of takes away from the beauty of the card. And then, and then, you know, then you're kind of at, I would say centering. And then after that, you're kind of at like corners and edges. So especially when you have a T206 card. And I think that's one thing that really helps you build an appreciation for eye appeal is when you're buying these old vintage cards where just like, you know, you have a finite amount of money. There's no way that you're going to get a PSA 10 out of any of these things. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, what, what are the pieces of the card that I'm willing to kind of put at a lower, uh, a lower stature than another element of the card. It kind of uh, allows for an introspection of what is it about this object that you actually really like, right? And it has nothing to do with the grade. It has everything to do with your eye looking at it and saying, oh, this looks cool to me, right? And then I feel like the adventure that I've had in vintage cards is all about appreciating the beauty of these cards that are graded a PSA 1.5 they're you know an S you know they're they're way down the list but they have qualities to them that really stand out as like wow this is this is really amazing right and so it's kind of like I kind of think of it almost like how they define pornography like you know it when you see it right you know a high eye appeal card when you see it and and it's really a personal decision as to like okay that one that one appeals to me you know that's the one I'm going to go after that's kind of how I think about it yeah, well, that that what really sticks out to me out of everything you just said is at the beginning when you said it's when you look at the card and your eyes are immediately drawn to the art and the image versus the flaws. That's a great way of of to me. That's that's my new measure. Like I'm I'm gonna now adopt that as my own way if you don't mind because that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm glad you shouted out Maddie C who was on with us here. A, a, I don't know five six weeks ago now. Another great sort of collector centric episode talking about what we love about these cards. So if you haven't, if you like, if you've enjoyed this episode, everybody, and I mean, I know, I think y'all have, cause I really have um, go back and watch one with Maddie. See, it's another, another great episode similar to, uh, to with similar appreciation for I appeal in cards. Tito wants to, when does the Netflix movie come out on this? Uh, <laughs> which is a, a good one. He goes on to say, "I appeal is huge on a card like the Gretzky rookie. Some of them are blurred and non-appealing, which is the trans, which is the uh, the registration, of course." Brendan says, "I define eye appeal by thinking about what causes eye pain. We all have different things that hurt our eyes. 
on our way to enjoying the beauty of a card, which is why it is a personal thing, as you stated yourself, Matthew. I think that makes a lot of sense. Brendan, Darren says this could be a 30 for 30 episode hearing the interworkings of the minds of both sides of the deal. Yeah, for sure. It's a Sports Cards Live episode, 30 for 30 on Sports Cards Live. There we go. Yeah. Oh, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. We did talk about, or I, I at least put in the description, that you you had some tips on how to build uh, a collection, how to curate a collection. You know, again, in the interest of time, is there anything that you could say to the, to the, to the audience right now, people listening later on? Um, I mean, you've said a lot already that I think there, I think you've sort of sprinkled in your tips to building a collection within this episode, but is there, is there anything that you haven't yet mentioned that you'd like to add? Yeah, I guess a way that I would put it succinctly is that, um, you know, I view card collecting is it's a highly personal experience. Like the cards that you have are a reflection of you, your interests, like what, what you deem to be valuable. So I try to think of my collection as being like, it's my own personal museum, of, of me and the things that I'm interested in. And I want that museum to be something that's comprehensible to not just me, like not just appreciated by me, but by other people. So it's kind of like, I think about it as a museum where you kind of think at the beginning of it, you know, I don't want this museum to be a million pieces. I want this museum to be, you know, and, you know, a hundred pieces, you kind of think about the size of your collection. And then you kind of want to, you know, divvy it up into different projects, like different wings of the museum. And you want, you want to build a collection where it's coherent, which what I mean by that is that, you know, the, another person looking at your collection sees card A and then they see card B and they're like, yeah, it totally makes sense that this person would love card B given that they have card A, right? And, and so I kind of think of my collection as like these different wings of a building. Like I have, you know, there's 2016 um, autographed Cubs cards, but then there's also Ernie Banks autographed cards, but then there's also, you know, Ernie Banks and various vintage cards. And so there's all these connections between the different wings of my museum. And so there's these different ways that these things fit together. And it's not just like a bunch of random cards that I thought were interesting. There's a reason that each card is there and there's an intention behind my choosing it. And so, and I think in thinking about your museum as being constrained, like there can only be so many objects in there. I think that leads to a lot of creativity in building out what your collection looks like. Cause I think like constraints breed creativity. And so then you can think about, okay, well maybe this wing of the museum isn't it interesting anymore. I'm gonna shut it down and maybe I'm gonna try to start a new wing of museum with this card. So it's always evolving, but it, I think it should always be coherent. It should make sense. It should be comprehensible to other people. That, that's kind of my soapbox version of, of what I think it means to curate a collection. Yeah, well said. Really well said. Again, it comes down to representing yourself. How do you want to, if you were to look at your collection as a representation of yourself, i.e. your interests, what 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 you are attracted to in within cardboard, um, that's what you how you should build your collection out. Because there's a lot of people come in and they don't know what to do. Where do I start? There's and there's a there's an infinite amount of ways that you can approach this hobby. So you really have to kind of almost pay your dues for a little bit, or just do your research, get get educated to the extent that you can, and then start chipping away. But the one thing you'll learn, no matter how long you've been in the hobby, you can always discover new things, and they may interest you more than some of the things you're currently interested in. So you might be pivoting. Even, you know, 20, 30, 40 years into the hobby, it's, there's always new things that come about. And uh, 
it's that's that's one of the things that's awesome about them. I want to go back in time. We had a comment. I don't think I read this one out, but I want to just uh, Yankees fan right here said great story, Matthew, and congratulations. And then again here says uh, that mantle being yours is all. I think he's saying yours is all has a full of eye appeal, or he's saying that the, that's what the fifty two tops mantle is about is eye appeal. Either way, both statements are true. I would say. Uh, Chris C here says centering to me is number one measure is the number one measurement. I could care less about a number on vintage. If the card has centering, I think he means like the number being the grade to me, it's registration, like focus the image itself, then centering, then corners, you know, edges and all that. After that, TDOS is blurred image. Just give me vertigo. Mark says creases bother me. Bad corners on all old cards. Don't. Yeah, me too. But even a crease nowadays, like I'm, I'm less, I'm, I'm less adverse to acquiring a card with a crease. Depends where that crease is and how obvious it is. But a little a crease on a, I'm, I'm, I'm growing more and more okay with it. And you're nodding in in, in aggressive agreement there. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like in if I think back to my vintage journey, right? I kind of started that with 56 tops and I was like, okay, I want centered, I want sharp corners, no creases. That was like a hard rule for me. But then as I started reaching back to 33 Gaudi to T206, you know, I didn't have the money to be able to buy the no crease versions of those cards, you know. And so you you, you kind of start to really examine yourself about like, okay, you know, where are my hard rules? And is it really a hard rule? Can I be flexible? Like one of the, my favorite cards actually is a, a 52 tops maze. That's an SGC 1.5 that has a bunch of creasing, but it just, it looks gorgeous. It looks amazing. Like, you know, you hold it out here, you can't see those creases, right? It just looks like a perfect card. And so I feel like as you, at least for me, as I've grown in the hobby, I've definitely relaxed a lot of my thinking on what ILPO means. And I try to really go back to that initial point of, does this card accentuate its positives while hiding its flaws or does it do the opposite? And sometimes a crease, it can be hidden. Like it's, it can be a thing I can live with. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm there too. Now. I don't know that I have any cards that have a crease to be honest yet. Oh, I mean, I do in my early 1910 cards, but, uh, after that, I don't think so, but I ha- I'd have to go look again. Uh, Jake says, so this, so does this mantle go into a vault, safety deposit box, or stay home with you? And are you willing to answer? Yeah, so, I, so right now it's staying at home with me, but it might be moving someplace else soon. There we go. Troy said, I like this. Will we see you on this show in <laughs> 10 years talking about this mantle and 10 other cards being part of a trade for a Honus Wagner? I mean, what? Possible? I mean, I feel like the Hannes Wagner is, um, that's, I mean, for me, I think I feel a bigger connection to the mantle card than, 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 than the Hannes Wagner, but I mean, never say never, you know, who knows, maybe I strike it rich. I invent something amazing and then I can buy it. There you go. (laughs) Right on. Right on. Uh, Darren says, Matthew, are you a collector who gives himself a challenge? Work for X, get it, trade it off or sell it and work to get it again. Yeah, that's a question. I mean, I think I do, but maybe not phrased that way. Like, you know, I'm thinking about building out my museum and I, I try to have a list of the cards that, you know, are really important additions to that museum. And then usually what I'm trying to do is pretty much like everyone else is like not trying to sink, you know, so much money into the hobby and try to rather use the cards I have. So there's a constant reevaluation of okay, if some, does somebody have to get kicked off the boat now because there's not enough room for them? And so it's, it's always a little bit of a mix, but I feel like 
the hobby is so much more fun if it's goal driven and if it's intention driven, right? You, you, you know what you have ideas of what your museum wants to look like and you're working on building that museum. And I feel like that makes it so much more fun, at least for me. So yeah, I guess I would say yes, concisely. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Fortune says, amazing card trade and episode. Thanks for sharing such a cool story. I'm definitely uh, definitely with it with you on that one. Uh, Get Swifty says, would it have made a difference if the mantle were graded by another company or would you have got the card anyway? Oh yeah, that's an easy one. So it would I would have gotten the card anyway. So I'm really like a strong believer in like I'm buying the card, not the slab. And so, I mean, the grade is important in that it kind of sets boundary conditions for the valuation, but I'm really trying to examine the card itself. And I have plenty of cards in my collection that are graded by other companies and that's fine with me. TDOT says, Jeremy, how much was the other mantle you saw? TDOT, I don't know. it. There was no price on the front of it, and I did not ask. Uh, Darren says, love the museum analogy. Truly art for sure. I'm with you on that, Darren. Um, okay. We'll let some more comments trickle. We're going to wrap up soon. But I wanted to also, you know, we had talked about what we were going to talk about. And one of the things was, and this is totally a new topic, but um, I want to, because you see, I think you thought about it a little bit, is the hobby moving forward here into 2023. And uh, Michael Rubin of, of Fanatics recently was was caught on in, caught on interview, mentioning some comments that you know the hobby's never been marketed, and uh, and so I think they want you know his plans are to market the, the company, the the hobby, and and grow the hobby. Um, what are your what are what are your thoughts uh, maybe on that or just on the hobby in general with that as some of the subtext? Yeah, I mean, so my thinking here is that, you know, we had obviously a big boom. And I feel like a lot of that boom was due to the fact that, it, you know, it was people like to say it was because people were at home. And I think that's part of it. But it's also that we got a lot of interest because sports weren't happening in the in, in a way to interact with sports was through cards, right. And also, there's kind of a gambling aspect to it that I think is also a non negligible piece of the pie. And I think as we move forward, and you know, and people who got into the hobby because of those reasons are now starting to find, you know, they've either left the hobby or they found the fact that the hobby is really fun if you have these connections to the objects. And what my hope is in the future is that like Fanatics being a company that at so far, you know, before they were doing cars, we're doing like a lot of authentication of, of game used jerseys and things like that. I feel like what, what I see is that, a very awesome version of that tops now card being the du jour that that being the normal thing where like cards have a deeper connection to the game maybe through authentication like where the patch that's in there is like you know has the mlb hologram it tells you exactly what game what out or whatever you know what happened when you know this object was in the field of play and i feel like you know fanatics if they do what with any reasonable business person would do and then try to broaden the pie is to realize you've got all of these sports fans and you want to make the connection between those sports fans and cards and trying to make that as easy as possible. From my, in my opinion, I think that, you know, I don't think card shows are a great way of bringing people into the hobby because there's, it, it's kind of a very intense, like transaction driven situation where you have to know how to haggle. And basically people don't want to deal with that. I think part of the reason the hobby's done really well in more recent times is the advent of the internet. And like, you could find a card that you wanted and you could see how much you were going to pay for it just on the screen and you could pay for it. And it was that easy. And I feel like 
you know, going forward, my expectation would be that Fanatics finds a way to make it easier for people to get cards. There's more, bring more people into the hobby, but also tries to figure out how to create a better connection between the cardboard and the games itself. Cause I feel like that's what keeps people in the hobby. And I think that's what drives it forward. Yeah. I think, I think one of the quotes, it might've been Michael Rubin that said it, or so I think a lot of people have probably said it, but it makes a lot of sense is that all all collectors are sports fans, but not all sports fans are collectors. And I've always wondered why aren't they? I mean, what do you guys are missing out on some fun stuff here, <laughs> some awesome things. So if you're a sports fan and not a collector, uh, you're, you're just shortchanging your, your, the amount that you can, you're, you're shortchanging your life. Like, like you mm-hmm. can enhance your life by getting to the, and of course I'm biased because I love, I love our hobby so much, but I also, I, you know, I say that, that all, collectors or sports fans i don't think that's true anymore i think i think most are i probably 98 or 95 98 percent are but i don't think they all are uh Mm -hmm. sports fans but nonetheless it's you know as a a generality it's still a pretty uh, accurate con um uh concept and and statement and uh and you know i i've always thought that the hobby could get a lot bigger simply because of that because cards are awesome we like we like to we we as humans have a I think there's a collector gene in in mm-hmm. most humans back to you know the our, our our just our our instincts as as human beings you know to hunters and gatherers and that that type of thing and uh but I think that I think the I think the collector gene is dormant in a lot of people so we just have to awaken that to to grow it or or maybe uh fanatics needs to needs to do that so uh yeah we will def we will definitely see all right, listen, we have been going for two hours and almost 13 minutes. Matthew, this has been a, a very enjoyable episode and conversation for myself. And um, so with that, let's wrap this up to the chat. Everybody, please, if you have any final comments, get them in as quickly as you can. And uh, I guess Matthew will give the final word to you, and then I'll just sort of do a couple of quick announcements and we'll wrap it up. So final, okay. final comments to you on, 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 the, on the evening. Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, I would encourage people to, you know, uh, you know, be inspired, right, by the story and, and, you know, getting this this awesome card and, you know, not it's the 52 tops mantle is a representation of something that, you know, all there's all collectors have their version of the 52 tops mantle, you know, that they're that they're searching for. And I was I would, um, you know, encourage people to, you know, when they think about their collection, think about, you um, you know, what, what can I do to deepen my, my connection to these cards and, um, you know, hopefully take, take some inspiration from my story to, you know, sometimes you got to take a big jump, right? You, you have to let go of some of the things that you love to really reach something, um, that you thought might've been out of your grasp. Yeah. Well said, well said. All right. Thank you for that. Let's do some comments here. Mark says, uh, congrats, Matthew, on your Blackhawks beating Boston in the Stanley cup during the strike. Sorry to hear about Bobby Hall, who passed away uh, not too long ago now. Brendan says, Jeremy, Matthew, this has been my favorite episode of SCL to date. Congratulations. You know, thanks, Brendan. And I'm not really surprised. Like, this was this was awesome. Thank you, Yankees fan. Appreciate that. Jake's Toe, appreciate it. Diamond Card Collector, thank you for coming out and putting in the comment. Brendan says, I can't wait for the sequel. When we hear from Ashish, she sounds like he'd be a good booking. Yes, not a bad idea, Brendan, for sure. Thank you very much for that. Uh, T-Doc, good to see you. Thanks so much. Darren, Chris, 
Matthew, uh, Mark says, Matthew, do you have a 7980 Bobby Hall card? I'm guessing uh, that's his last playing days card. Do you happen to have one of those? No, I do not. And Laura says, thanks for the captivating evening, gentlemen. Thank you, Laura. Okay, that is it, everybody. I will be back tomorrow. Thank you, Jake Dahl. I will be back tomorrow again, 4.30 Eastern, the LCG Pop Culture Auction. We're going to be talking action figures. And I, I, I've got a box of them sitting right here to, to show tomorrow. Come join. Check that out. That'll be a lot of fun if you want to kind of expand your scope of interest. It's not typical content, but... It's an interest of mine. I can't wait to do that tomorrow. It's their extended bidding for their winter premiere pop culture auction. Check that out. And then later that night tomorrow, there we go. There's a figure. Later to, later tomorrow night at what will be 9.30 Eastern, I'll be back with Josh Madigan of the Hockey Cards Gong Show. And we will be covering the extended bidding for the PWCC weekly hockey auction. That'll be fun as well. And then finally on Monday, 6.30 Eastern, Vincent Zerzolo of Metropolis Collectibles and Comic Connect. He's one of the foremost experts in comic books, comic art in the space. will be joining us on Collectible Live on this channel, Monday, 6.30. This is now the end of the third episode of six. I'm doing in five days. I think that's my my, my most uh, compact run ever, but I'm excited and having a lot of fun. So thank you everybody for joining in the chat. Hopefully we see you tomorrow, Matthew. Thanks again. This was a lot of fun. And with that, let's wave goodbye. This episode is now over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.